What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Three of Seven podcast. Hey, I'm pleased to introduce you guys to a good friend and brother of ours at Three of Seven Project named Chris Reckliff. This will be a two-part episode, so today you'll get the first half. Chris served for four years and five months in the U.S. Navy as a Navy diver and EOD tech, electronic ordnance disposal technician, uh, underwater. So he's got some awesome, awesome stories from his career in the Navy. And then he went on to serve 31 years, pretty sure that's right, uh, in the LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, eventually working his way into uh, the OIC officer in charge position of one of the most highly specialized teams within the LAPD. That position has led him to some uh, really, really awesome stories and adventures, if you can call it that, right? Uh, really high op tempo on this specialized team, taking down some of the most violent and most wanted criminals on earth. They actually, uh, Chris's team took down the FBI's number one most wanted individual. And uh, he tells that story along with many others. Very non-traditional career working in, in a high capacity, really, from the beginning of his career in LAPD uh, all the way up through to the time he retires. We just loved hearing these stories from Chris. I hope you guys love them too. I hope you can take away the valuable, valuable lessons that he has learned and that he presents during his episode on the 3 of 7 podcast. So, Chris, thanks for coming on, brother. I hope you guys all enjoy this. Love you guys. Hope you're all doing well. Without further ado, here is Chris Reckliff. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the 3 of 7 podcast. This is an interesting show for two reasons. Um, the biggest reason is because we've got our brother, Chris Reckliff, on the show. Chris has uh, he is a graduate of the basic course, graduate of the proving ground. That's how we got to know him. Um, he's a big part of the body of three of seven project. Uh, and so this is what this is the Chris that we know, right over the last few months, but Chris, we learned very quickly, has had a very unique, uh, powerful, interesting life of service to his community um, where he still now lives. And I just want to start off, Chris, by telling you, obviously, thank you for your service to the American people, not only as a law enforcement officer, but your service to your country um, as a, a, a Navy veteran um, and your continued service to the people that know you, right? The people who have gotten to work with you outside of work. Uh, and that being me included, brother. Well, thank you very much. Humbled and honored to be here. Uh, still in a little bit of shock that you even invited me, but thank you very much. <laughs> well, uh, we realized, like I say, on the basic course, as we were out on the mission with Chris and his team, 
you know, we get started. We, we Chris is, you know, talking to his teammates and us instructors. We're kind of listening, you know, from wherever we are in the in the patrol, and we're like, oh, we, we let's let me let me bump up a little bit. I want to hear this story, right? <laughs> so we learned real quick. There are some cool stories uh, and just, like I say, awesome life. Chris is still, to this day, when I see him out, I saw him out at the Proving Ground this past weekend, and still you see him, and all he does is give. He's not there to take from anybody. He's just there to give. A very unique, unique human being. The other second thing that makes this podcast very um, unique Oh, wasn't that burp? Blake and I are sharing a microphone. <laughs> Just like this. Chad told me, he said, listen, buddy, you talk too much at the proving ground and you're talking too much on my podcast. I'm going to take the mic from you. Now we have to share a mic. So here, I, here we are down. So yeah, uh, I just had to take the mic away from Blake. I mean, he's he's talking too much. I'm afraid somebody is going to end up calling him a fool. <laughs> so Blake and I are sharing a microphone. So that's the two unique things about this podcast, brother Chris. How's your trip been? It's been good. Uh, flew in mid last week uh, just to get a little acclimated with the time change and. Uh, Spent Thursday night with my old swim buddy, forever swim buddy, Peter Ortiz, mm -hmm. from the basic course, and uh, stayed with him and Tom, uh, brother Tom, on Thursday night, reunited, caught up on uh, you know, what was going on on each of our lives, and uh, we got to it. We got to it hard on Friday. You weren't <laughs> messing around. You gave us 137 seconds to go from that classroom to the PT field. Brother, I, I'm glad I did because I didn't know what you were going through in that upstairs room, man. You you needed to get out and get some fresh air, didn't you? True story. Yeah. yeah. So like I told you guys earlier, I had, again, I'm not anti-vaccine. Yeah. Uh, I'm from Los Angeles, California, which was the uh, most restrictive uh, guidelines when it comes to school closures you know, restaurant closures regarding COVID. But yet, with all of that, Los Angeles still had the highest uh, caseload, positive cases of COVID, and uh, highest death rate, more than New York City. I worked the entire frontline, um, you know, field of uh, police work for the entire year of 2020. Never had any issues, but I elected to get the vaccine prior to coming here um, for a specific reason, yeah. so I can go visit my mother. Um, and in doing so, I had an adverse reaction. Um, and we talked about the symptoms and what mm -hmm. happened. Um, and I remember reaching out to my sister uh, two days before I was flying here. And uh, I, you know, I told her, um, and she says, hey, you're, you're having severe adverse reactions to the Johnson & jo Johnson vaccine. And the reason I called her was that was the day they had pulled it from the market. The C CDC did. So I'm like, great, the vaccine I get, you know, a couple of days later, people are dying from it, getting blood clots. And to this day, sitting here, I'm still not well. But um, like you say, you know, if you don't speak the word, 
doesn't exist. And, you know, cause she's telling me, go to your doctor, you know, you need to see him now. And I'm not a brain surgeon. I joined the Navy at 17. So I know what's coming. If I go to a doctor, doctor's going to say, stay home, get some rest. Yeah. Take some time and all plenty of fluids. Don't do anything strenuous. If I tell a doctor I'm flying to Georgia, Navy SEAL is going to torture me for three, three days. He's going to say, no, you're not going. So I just kept it to myself. Yeah. But when I arrived and I was having dinner with Pete and Tom, uh, they both picked up on it. They could see I was off. Yeah. And they said, hey, you, you know, you're doing all right. And so I'm like, you know, I better tell them because I knew I wasn't going to tell any of the instructors. I said, you know, hey, I'm going to tell you guys, but just just keep it in house between the three of us. In case I drop on the course, you know, it's not a heart attack. I don't take any medications. I'm having some issues mm -hmm. with this vaccine. And again, I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm not telling anyone to get a vac vaccinated or not for COVID. That's a personal decision. I have no regrets getting it because I got it for a specific reason. Mm -hmm. I'm just having some difficulties with uh, the way I feel. And um, they said, okay, Roger, that, you know, we'll keep your eye on you. But uh, when you okey-doked me and swim buddy Pete on the PT field mm -hmm. and split us up in two different platoons, I realized, oh, okay, you know, we're doing separate evolutions. If I fall down and something happens to me and he doesn't, he's not going to be around to see and tell you guys, hey, this is what, how Chris has been feeling. This is what he did prior to coming here. He got a vaccine. So I told my new swim buddy, Matt, I said, I hey, just keep this between me and you. But if I go down, you're my swim buddy. This is, this is all it is. Um, is it this way? If any, you know, anything happened, because I was not, like you said, in that classroom when, yeah. we, when we started, you're talking, it reminded me, and this is what was keeping me standing. So on the basic course, I remember we kicked off, and I know we don't like to give away too much about the proven ground and basic course, um, but we were a quarter mile into the mission, and uh, on day one of the basic course, and you're behind me walking, and I just remember hearing you say, so Chris, you retire yet? And I go, no, sir, two more, three more months, and right when I say that, I trip, fall, face plant with my 60-pound pack, bust my knuckle open. I'm trying to do the old suck on the blood like no one saw that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, what a what an idiot, Chris. What a first impression you just made in front of Chad Wright. He just face planted in front of him. And now, what, four months later? Yeah. Five yeah. months later, um, here I am at the proving ground, and you bring us up to the classroom to start, and you're talking to us, and we're in a circle. Mm-hmm. And I just felt the walls coming in. Yeah. And I go, I'm, I'm about to faint. I've never fainted in my life. And I'm like, I'm about to collapse. Um, I know that feeling, man. That's that feeling when you've been underwater for too long. Right. right? And the vision starts to close in. It gets, yeah. And, and all I remember, the last thing I remember before I was about to drop, I heard you say, y'all have 137 seconds to get to the PT field. And... You know, the door opened, so we went out and got fresh air, and that kind of snapped out of it, snapped me out of it, and uh, got a little bit more clear-headed. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I just said, hey, I'm not telling any instructors I'm going to I'm gonna get through this. I'm not going to talk about it, think about it. I'll, I'll get through it. You know, see, I never would have known you were going through that, uh, Chris, to be honest with you, which, you know, your swim buddies – are going to know you better than I'm going to know you as your instructor. 
But when I, like I said, when I go, when I get there, I'm looking at the the proving grounds. I'm looking at two troop as like a whole organism. So it's a strange dynamic there. At the basic course, we get to focus on each other as individuals. I think more so than at the proving ground, we're looking at the the organism that is two troop. So I I had no clue you were going through that, man, until you showed up to the house today and. You know, I said that, you know, and, and, and now what the mission is behind us, it's proper to say, hey, buddy, no, we don't need, well, I, I, this is how I feel. And you told me how you felt. We went running anyways. Yeah, it was but, good, good run this yeah, afternoon. We had a good. dang good run, man, and you crushed it. But. No, first of all, I didn't crush it. Second of all, Blake, I, I, I drive here about an hour and a half, hour, 45-minute drive, right? And I did a hike this morning. Like yesterday, just real easy stuff, like three miles of walking. I pull up, Chad comes walking up. He goes, all right, brother, we're going on a 10-mile run. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> we are? I thought I was well, doing a podcast. Well, that, yeah, that's one thing I didn't tell you guys about Chris. He's also an ultra runner, and uh, he's just, just done a lot of amazing things. And Blake, if you need the mic, just do this. Can you do this? <laughs> Chad's all the time giving you something you weren't expecting, wasn't he? Uh, you know what? And that's that's you should you should have expected exactly. the unexpected, I, I, Chris. I was saying that failure on me to anticipate. So I got what, what you know what I deserved. Podcast. The podcast is just what we do after the run. That's that's how it should be. So, um, all right, brother. Uh, gosh, it's so hard. And, and here's the thing, guys. Uh, with Chris, with Chris. First of all, how many years of service in military and law enforcement do you have, Chris? Uh, so at 17, uh, I joined the Navy, and we talked about this. I was what's called the delayed entry program. So I signed up as a juvenile. Um, my parents uh, were happy to go down to the recruiter's office and sign the papers since I was a juvenile, ship me off. I left when I was 18 uh, to go to boot camp. Um, and then I went, I got assigned to the USS Pyro. I was just a, a fireman rank. Mm -hmm. you know, I just enlisted. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to serve. Uh, my father was in the Navy, and I wanted to follow footsteps. Um, I always wanted to serve my country, join the Navy, and as soon as I got to the USS Concord, which, uh, I'm sorry, the USS Pyro, which is in Concord, California, it's actually the USS Pyro 2, because the first USS Pyro blew up in port and wiped out the town of Concord. Uh, it's an ammunition ship, AE-24. As soon as I got on board, we went on a quick three-month Westpac, and we went to Hawaii first, and I noticed uh, these four guys get on board uh, once we get to Hawaii, and they got UDT shorts, green shirts, T-shirts, and jungle boots. Go back out to sea, we hit Guam, I see a pickup truck come up, got a bunch of dive gear in the back, tanks I can see. I've never dove before, but I obviously know what dive tanks look like yeah. twin 80s twin 90s etc and i see these four guys get off jump in this pickup truck and they take off we go back out to sea we're headed to like guam and japan hong kong korea etc philippines and while we're at sea and i'm working in an engine room and in the times i'd come up to chow i'd see them we had a it was only 250 i think crew on board and we had a small helo deck i'd see them working out on deck running around the ship so I befriend, befriended them, and I said, hey, what do you guys, who are you guys? What do you do? They said, oh, we're EOD. Mm -hmm. um, I said, okay, roger that. What's that? You know, I, I got all a two months out of boot camp, you know, and they t 
told me what, you know, what they did, what their assignment was. And I said, you know, how do I get in that? So on the way back, um, you know, to the States on our Westpac, when we hit Guam coming back, I took the, the PFQ, the physical fitness test. Um, and then when we got to Hawaii, I remember getting interviewed by their lieutenant. And by the time we got back to Concord, California, there was orders waiting for me to go to dive school and bomb school. Um, but like, you know, the Navy's not just going to give you uh, this cool training without something in return. So I had to sign an extension. A little commitment. Yeah. So I ended up doing four years and five months. I know it's an odd number, uh, but I had to sign five months. And I remember signing it. So I'm still on board and I sign it. And I go to the guy that I'm signing the papers with. I go, hey, by the way, I never dove before. So if I don't make it through dive school, like, what happens? Like, does this extension go away? And they're like, oh, no. <laughs> you still got that commitment? And the Navy's just going to send you to whatever ship needs you. And you'll be a fireman out, out back out there. And, you know, which is fine because I loved the Navy uh, and, and, and being on a, on a ship. But that's, that wasn't what I wanted. Um, I knew right away when I saw these guys and they, I remember they put on the chow hall one day had the old TVs with the VHS, they yeah. actually put in a VHS recruitment tape on EOD. And I said, yeah, that, that's what I want to do. So I went, they sent me to Panama city, Florida yep. for dive school, maybe dive school. And I remember after day one, realizing immediately that I was in over my head. I'm like, this, this, this is brutal. Dive school is no joke. Yeah. And I, I believe it was five weeks. Uh, the whole training was three months, but we did five weeks or six weeks of dive school in Panama City. We started with 28. We graduated 12. Uh, if there was only 11 spots, I wouldn't have made it because out of those 12 that graduated, I was number 12. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no joke about it. Now, now, were you surfing and stuff? Were you in the water prior to joining the Navy? or Yeah. So what I, was hard about it for you? Well, I mean, originally I was born in Canada. Uh, I was fortunate enough that my parents came to the States, and um, it's a part I forgot. Um, so when I joined the Navy, and then I didn't have to sign away my Canadian citizenship, but when I went into the EOD program, I had to. Had to, yeah. And that's because of... Security clearance and... Yeah. Right. So I had renounced my Canadian citizenship, which is great because I hate the cold, uh, so I had no desire to go back to Canada. So that was that was the easiest thing. <laughs> no choices after that. But, you renounced it. Yeah. yeah. So me and my buds would go down to the Jersey Shore, and that's basically where I learned to surf. Okay. Um, started with, you know, barring people's boards, um, big truck inflatable tires. You, know, you could if you could surf waves with big inflatable tires, you can pretty much learn to surf on anything at that point. Yeah. But nothing, you know, dramatic. I just love the ocean, um, and swimming. And, and being out there, it was it was the the, the PT running forever on the sand, mm -hmm. and it was immediately getting thrown into breathing air underwater. Doesn't it feel weird the I first had, time? I had never done that, and anyone listening that wants to be a Navy diver, uh, this is what you don't do. <laughs> they put you in the shallow end, which is like three feet, and you're sitting on the bottom of the pool. Yep. Right? And it goes down to like 25 feet. But we're on the shallow end, about three feet, first day breathing air, and they have you sit down on the bottom, you know, stand on top, put the regulator in your mouth, and then sit on the bottom and start breathing. 
and they're looking at you and I'm going, this, this ain't right. This not is not natural. This is not natural. And I did the thing you're not supposed to do. I immediately got back up, you know, out of that water. This is the first time you're there. That's when all, you know, now for the rest of your time you're there, the instructors got you in their radar and they're going to watch you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that, that you guys have to understand how dangerous that is. Yes. Even in three feet of water. Right. There's something you guys have probably heard me say arterial gas embolism. It's very dangerous. Yes. So, yes, a dive instructor sees you get a little uncomfortable breathing compressed air underwater. Boom. They're, they're going to watch you like a hawk. Not, not because they hate you, but because it's dangerous. You're going to be a detriment to the team. Yeah. And as simple as that. And if you don't belong, you don't belong. No hard feelings, you're out. That's it, brother. Uh, I quickly, and it was the help of, you know, the other guys that are going through the training, you know, we'd be in the barracks at night getting ready for, you know, bed, getting ready to go through the ringer again the next day. And it was always just sitting around. It was almost like a pre-visualization mm-hmm. course that I didn't know existed until I talked to you about it. That's why, you know, to learn how to relax. And I actually started having fun with it because I remember they used to take us to the, it was like a 25 foot deep pool but they fill the water to like 20 feet. So when you're surface and you're flutter kicking to stay afloat, because you, you'll do drills all day long on the bottom of, of the pool. And if you're a heavy breather of that air, you're sucking air. When you're done with your tank air, you have to go to the surface and kick and stay afloat till the last person's done breathing air. Which, be- which is not easy. This is a standard that we have in buds, Chris. It's a five-minute tread with ten, twin 80s, right. open circuit rig on your back. I can't tell you how many dudes fail that evolution. It is not easy to, to tread water with twin 80s on your back. Extremely difficult. And as you can tell, I'm not a big guy either. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was just fighting to stay up there. But, you know, that's kind of when you start getting forged into learning how to, you know, grind it out and be, you know, and grit, you know, yeah. and tough things out. But I started getting so comfortable that I remember during pool week was five days. They called it pool week. It's like hell week. Yeah. Yeah, but it's certainly not like hell week. We went to bed at night. But it's intense. Yeah. I've heard about pool week. I've never been through it, but I've heard about it. It's it was brutal. Um and they used to play so under underneath the water there was a big window. So you would see Mm -hmm. like the commanding officer of dive school behind that glass watching you underwater. Um, and I already have a target on my back because they already knew from day one breathing air that I wasn't comfortable. But I became so comfortable because I loved it. They used to play the theme from Jaws on the underwater sound system. It was awesome. Like for some reason, I'm like, this is the I'm getting paid for this. This is great. <laughs> I, I, I I never expected this. So you, now you're diving on the bottom of the pool, and I specifically remember when they were. It was the it was the phase where the instructors are on the surface with just snorkels and masks. Yeah. And you're on the bottom with your dive buddy. And then they come flying down and they, you know how it is, man. They hit you. They flip you upside down. They rip the first thing they do is smack the regulator out of your mouth. They wait till you've already breath breathed out bubbles. They tie your regulator around your yep. manifold in the back and they're trying to dr- drag your tanks from you. Um, you know, they're popping off the straps and that was always the rule. Uh, it doesn't matter if you lose your fins, your mask, anything. It's don't let the instructors get the tanks from you. So I remember being on the on the bottom of the pool, 
an instructor is dra- uh, dragging my tanks from me and I'm hanging on for dear life. And I remember being so comfortable. I just started smiling, shaking my head, going, you ain't getting these tanks. And, wow, man. And, and how that happened, I don't know. I, I really think it was visuals, visualizing yep. that I'd go to bed at night and picture, this is what I'm going to do and remain calm. Because, you know, if you panic when you're underwater, it, it, if, you, if you panic right now, we're, we're above ground, we can control our breathing yep. and calm yourself down, calm your heart rate. If you're underwater and you don't have air and you panic, it's you, all over. You, you can't get calm. It's over. So I just ended up having fun with it. To me, it was a, a fun experience. Well, that, you know, that visualization is, is a key technique, especially that, that's the main technique that I also use. It's so cool how our experiences are so similar. That's the main um, technique that I use to accomplish tasks in the water was visualization with diving, underwater swims, whatever it was. And, and this, this evolution that Chris is telling you guys about right now uh, I don't know if you've heard about it. It's, we call it in the SEAL teams pool comp, pool competency. So like Chris said, you're crawling along the bottom of the pool. They come down on you like a shark and just wreck your world, man. And you have to do everything you can to keep to keep hold of your tanks. And then when it's all over, you have to do everything you can to fix your mess that they've created. You have to fix it so that you can get air again, right? And when you get yourself all fixed, there can't be a twist in a strap anywhere. There can't be any, right? Everything has to be traced, right, perfect. Did they ever give you the whammy knot that you couldn't fix and you had to FSA? No, it happened to some of the guys. And I just, I remember one guy that that drowned and they had to, you know, get him to the top and and resuscitate him on the pool deck. But I, I got lucky. I was able, there was plenty of times. Because once the, the instructor with just a snorkel that obliterates you, li- lets you go, you can't fight back. All you can do is hold on to your tank. It's like you're getting pummeled by the surf. Right. In the surf zone, yeah. You can't fight back. You just roll with it. And then once the instructor with the snorkel lets you go and goes to the surface, the dive instructors that are breathing air on the bottom are, are on their knees right there, and they hit their start on their stopwatch. And, and I don't remember what it was, 60 seconds, 90 seconds. You have to clear everything. The first thing is getting your air back on and taking a hit of air. Yep. Right. Um, so there was plenty of times I couldn't at first undo, you know, my regulator um, from the manifold. Yeah. But I was always able to at least get my mouth on it, get a hit of air, calm down a little bit, and then work it out. So I never got that knot that just couldn't be undone. Mm-hmm. But you're mm-hmm. right. You, you're, you're getting timed. And if one of the straps you know, is twisted or, or whatever you fail, you failed. Um, and you got to do it again. Talk about attention to detail. Yes. Under stress, but it's the only way it should be for a job like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and which helped forge later in life, other assignments that I went and did. Um, but yeah, I, I somehow made it through again. We started with 28, graduated 12, and then they gave us three days to get up to, uh, Indian head, Maryland for bomb school. So you picture 12, we're now salty because we graduated Navy dive school, right? Oh, yeah. Navy divers, dude. D- Navy divers are some salty cats. I'm telling you, man. So, so we get up there and we think, oh, man, this is just going to be classroom, ch- ch- uh, you know, uh, challenges and then maybe some field exercises, blowing stuff up. 
a lot of classroom instruction on, you know, explosives, et cetera. You're thinking you've already been through the crucible of dive school. Exactly. Yeah. First week up there, didn't see anything about bombs, no classrooms. They tortured us in the river, nothing but river swims. I'm talking, it takes you like 20 minutes to swim 100 yards against the current and like five minutes to swim back because the current's just that powerful. Yeah. All the, and then swimming in the pool with bricks in your hand, the wet towels, mm-hmm. you know, swimming laps with a wet towel on each hand. Um, they, they got us good. They got our minds right. Did uh, you guys ever do drown proofing, Chris, where they tie your hands and feet up? We did not. Okay. Um, we did it in, in the form of you had to keep your hands behind your back. Yeah. And yeah. your ankles crossed, but they never physically tied us like they did you guys. Yeah. Okay. And, and by the way, in the Navy, in the Navy, these swimming pools that me and Chris are talking about, we're calling them swimming pools because that's what you guys understand them as. They're actually called combat training tanks. When you walk in and see this swimming pool, you realize real quick, this is not a place for pleasure. Right. <laughs> Crap's about to go down, son. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. So EOD school, they 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 basically kick you in the face the first week. Yes. To get your minds right, they're like, just because you have a dive pin, that means nothing. Because you're still a student at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. So once that week was over, then it was more into learning about explosives, setting charges, detonations, um, you know, you know the whole thing, deck mm-hmm. cord, blasting caps, C4, et cetera. And what kind of... Uh, what kind of stuff were, were you guys in back in those times? What were you training for specifically? Was it was it clearing underwater obstacles or, or ship attacks or, or what what was it specifically? And again, the, my years of service was not you know it was during peacetime. Yeah, there were no wars going on, so we were still training when I ultimately got to my detachment upon graduating. You know, bomb school, I got sent to uh, Detachment Point Magoo which is uh, the Pacific Missile Test Center in Ventura, California. I was fortunate enough to get it because out of all the dive teams in the Navy, all the EOD teams, Point, Point Magoo does more diving than any other dive team. Mm. So I was stoked about that. Um, we did a lot of, um, how do I say this? So the Navy has some, some practice areas off the coast, if you will. Um, where we would do a lot of training, recovering a lot of certain items that would be dropped into the ocean. Mm-hmm. We would have to, we would get orders to go, uh, they were called mine X, mine yeah. exercises. Uh, and we would go recover certain things from the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did a lot of that and we did a lot of swimming into the harbor. Um, you know, we would take the helicopter rides and we do the 30 for 30, 20 for 20 and 10 for 10s. 30 for 30s is the helicopter. We can go in 30 at 30 feet. Yep. You can jump off with no tanks. I think it was 20 for 20. You can jump in uh, not with tanks still. Something else, other equipment you could wear at that mm-hmm. height and speed. But you, we could only jump with t- full tanks on twin 80s if it was going 10 and 10 feet above. Because you don't want to snap your back. Yep. Hitting that water sometimes is like hitting concrete. If Dang you hit right, it man. So we're doing a lot of that, swimming in the ports uh, at night in darkness and, you know, practicing putting, you know, 
limpet mines on on holes of ships. Yeah, uh, in 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 uh, in ports, mm-hmm. like we would say, do that. You know, wh- whether it be in foreign territory, or whatever, at war. But again, I was during peacetime, so everything I did was always just training. Well, and and likewise, same for us, Chris. It, it, when it comes to diving, there's there are very few seals that have done actual combat diving missions. Very, very few. I'd say you could probably count on one hand right now within the last 20 years, SEALs that have done, now I say SEALs, SEALs that have done combat diving missions that aren't part of the SDV teams. You know, the SDV teams, that's all they do is dive. And man, they're doing some cool stuff. I mean, this is a cool, diving is a really cool skill. And when you pair it with, the knowledge of knowing how to blow stuff up or recover things that will go boom. That's a serious job, man. It, it was fun setting a lot of charges. Yeah. Uh, both in the ocean and we also would go out to the desert and do a lot of detonations yeah. as well. Um, but we, on a monthly basis, we had, we had training out there off the coast. We were doing a lot of dive ops. I can't really get into how many yeah. and, and what they entailed. Uh, but I, I never had any close, you know, encounters or issues with uh, hundreds upon hundreds of dives. I did uh, other than two things. One, I wrecked my hearing a couple of times um, because when you're young, you know, it would be, we would go out and we'd have to recover, say a total of 40 items from the ocean floor. So, eight of us would go out there and you're partnered up. You always got a dive buddy, right? That's it. So in the morning before sunrise, we would go out in the F-470, you know, Zodiac rubber boats with the sonar, hang over the side, and we would mark what we we're looking for on the bottom. We'd mark it from the surface, throw a clump with a line, with a buoy, mark all the things we're supposed to recover. It's just training. Mm-hmm. And then earlier at sunrise, we would go out. So say me and Blake are dive buddies, you know, it was always a competition. Oh, who, I'm sure. Who would recover the most items, right? Mm-hmm. And then whoever recovered the most, when we got back home to our detachment, after this training exercise for a couple of days, you know, everyone else would have to buy the dinner, the beers, whatever, right? So what That's Bla- the Navy, man. So what Blake and I would do is, you know how it is, the, the dive manual, I don't know if it's changed, but it used to be descending was 75 feet a minute. And ascending was 60 for 60. Yeah. So that means a foot a second coming back up. That's really when you're going to get hurt. Yep. Well, we throw that, especially the descending part, out the window. Because mm-hmm. the faster you go to the bottom and have less bottom time because you recover what you're looking for and you get back to the surface, the clock stops. The more you can dive. The more you day. can dive, right? right? So Blake and I look at each other and go, hey, what do you about? We'll throw an extra 10 pounds of weight on our weight belt. <laughs> so we would scream down to the bottom oh my so, gosh so dude. so the boat the dive boat would you know we it was a 24 foot monarch boat pull up alongside dive dive master would pull up the slack from the you know on the line from the buoy try to get it as taut as possible blake and i would hobble over face each other nod and we'd roll off the back mm-hmm. we'd meet underneath the bottom and we would scream to the ocean floor mm-hmm. we would scream and so much so i mean you, it starts getting dark quick you know, in California waters. Oh yeah. And, um, we would go in so fast sometimes like, 
like right now I'm under the weather because of this vaccine. It feels like I have a cold. Probably sounds like I have a cold. And you're trying to clear, equalize mm -hmm. pressure in yours. We're going so fast. If, if you start to squeeze, even if you try to stop, it's too late. You're going to squeeze. So I would squeeze my ears often. There's a positive part to that. You're tearing a part of your eardrum. So now you don't have to worry about squeezing that ear for the rest of the dive op. You know, so, you know, that's the way our minds worked at a young age. And we would go so fast that by the time, you know, you get to almost perpetual darkness. And then by the time you see the ocean floor, you know, I would collide into it and Blake would be right behind me colliding <laughs> into me. And, you know, usually, and some, one of us would be the, what we call the driver, have the handheld sonar, find the item we're looking for. Usually it's pretty close. We marked it pretty close from the surface. We'd recover it, hook into it we'd go back up. But instead of 60 for 60, we would probably go from 100, say we're at 100 feet below the surface. Instead of taking 100 seconds like the dive manual, we'd probably go up in about 50, 60 seconds. And we would just, what we would do is we would just constantly blow out. Yeah. Blow out the whole time. Yeah. Um, as, that, as that air expands in your lungs, guys, as you're coming up, you have to release that air out of your lungs right. as it expands. Right. Or, or other words, it causes significant damage. Right. Yeah, so that's a, that's a dangerous game you guys were playing, man. We were, but young, young and dumb. Oh, yeah. You, you know, you're invincible. That's it. So of all those, the only thing that ever, I only had one close call, and it was my very last dive in the Navy. Other than the sea lions that would, you know, scare the bejesus out of you mm -hmm. as you're going down and suddenly you'd see a, a shadow coming your way and you're, you know, you're immediately, your heart pops thinking it's a shark and it's a sea lion and they would bang against you and play with you all the way to the ocean. They love to do that. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, but I only had one close call and it was the last dive of the Navy. I actually got a tattoo to, as a memento from it. So me and I was diving with our, our dive corpsman, Bill Scott. And uh, there was one last item to recover. We got to the surface, and our, our dive op, our, our master chief's like, hey, you got one more down there. You guys good to do it. You got enough bottom time left on the dive table. You good? I'm like, look at my tank, my pressure, how much air. I was a little low on air, but I wasn't too worried about it. I said, yeah, roger that. Because every one we had hit, we got to the bottom. What we were looking for was right there. So this, this is the last dive of my Navy career. I'd already got accepted to the police academy. You know? Wow, man. We flip off the boat, scream to the bottom. He's got the sonar. We get to the bottom, and what we're looking for isn't there. So my job is I have to unhook the hooks from the rope that goes to the surface to the buoy and put it in. I call it a clump. It's just a big weight with a hole in the middle. I put the line through it. I give them to him, and he's got the sonar, and he's off on the ocean floor going in the direction of where he's getting a signal and he, to look for the item. I'm pulling the slack from the surface to give him slack so he can keep going out to find this. Mm -hmm. I get to the point where, okay, I got no more slack and he still needs slack. I can't see him now because he's too far away and it's dark down there. So I do what we're trained to do. I hold on to the line and I pick up the clump off the ocean floor and you walk backwards in the direction you want to go. Mm -hmm. It's the easiest way to carry it. As I'm doing that, again, that's the free up slack for him to keep reaching to where he needs to go, his destination. I realize I got no more air. No big deal. Got a reserve. Mm -hmm. So I hit the little reserve on my manifold. No air. 
So, you know, when you jam the jugs or you charge the jugs, you have to have the reserve down, at least back then. I can't, you know, we're talking the 80s. You have to have the reserve down or the air is not going to fill up the reserve tank. Yeah. I had no air in my reserve tank. So now I'm on the ocean floor and I'm exhausted because it's like our sixth dive of the dive set. And I'm on the ocean floor at about, you know, 105, 110 feet below the surface. and I've got no air. And your swim buddy's out of sight. You got it. So nobody breathing at this point. Nope. Yeah. So I drop the clump and I just start following the line, holding my breath. And I get to him and he hasn't reached the item. And he feels me pulling. He looks and I go. And so he knows right away I got no air. So he gives me his regulator. We buddy breathe for a little bit, calm down a little bit. Yeah. Here's the thing, as you know, those airs, those tanks, that air in those tanks fill up your buoyancy compensator, your BC, mm-hmm. to help you ascend. Yep. Well, now you're exhausted on the ocean floor, and I have no air to even fill up my buoyancy compensator. So I've got to kick from the bottom to get to the surface. A hundred plus and feet. While we buddy breathe with the regulator. Holy smokes, Back and brother. forth. Now, I'm sure you guys, you know, guys obviously had much more training than us, but as you know, when you're ascending and you the water surface starts to get a little lighter, you know, I'm not looking at my gauge. Usually you're looking at your gauge. I'm not concentrating on that. We're just concentrating on buddy breathing. Yeah. But normally it starts to get a little light, so you know, okay, I'm getting closer to the surface, and you always put your hand over your head. Yeah. And that's so you don't bang in anything as you, you know, hit the surface. Well, as luck would have it, um, the guy that was replacing me, the new guy on the team, was the coxswain driving a dive boat. He couldn't find our bubbles as we were coming up, mainly because the seas were pretty rough. And more importantly, instead of a set of two bubbles coming up, there was only, only a set one, of one. Yeah. And he lost sight of where we were, uh, you know, coming back up. And because we didn't know this, we were coming up underneath the boat. And so we didn't have our hands overhead because it was still dark. It was still cast in a shadow. Yeah, yep. So next thing I know, we bang our heads into the bottom of the boat. And I turn, I look, and there's the prop, prop. Slow, slowly going, turning towards me. Gosh, and, dog, man. Yeah, and Bill Scott grabbed me and just pulled me out of the way. And, uh, you know, obviously got lucky enough to not get chopped up and uh, made it to the surface. So I go my whole Navy career with no issues, and the very last dive, I almost drowned on the bottom of the ocean floor. Who charged those tanks? I never even asked. Okay. I never even asked. Yeah. Um, I know it wasn't me. <laughs> that, yeah. That I know, but um, whether it was the new guy or not, uh, really doesn't matter because, you know, when you're part of a team, it, it may be an individual's fault, but there's always a backup. You know, somebody's yeah. charging tanks. There's somebody else that's supposed to be double checking, yeah. making sure, you know, they go over to where everything's getting, we call it, you know, jamming the jugs. Someone goes over there and looks and double checks that, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's got the reserve lever, you know, all the sets of twin 80s got the reserve uh, lever down position. So it's getting filled. Somebody missed it. Um, but it is what it is, you know. Yeah, and that's that's um I see I didn't dive a lot of open circuits, so I'm just trying to it, it's awful strange that that being your last dive uh to run into a a scenario uh of that magnitude. 
This is this is a big deal. I, I mean, I'm sure the listeners can understand. Now, I can't even understand it because I've never dove to 100 feet. The, the deepest I've ever dove was 30 feet. If I was ever below 30 feet, it was because I had accidentally take, taken an excursion. <laughs> uh, you know, oxygen is toxic. You get below 30 feet, and I was always diving pure oxygen when I was in open water. So I can't even understand what it feels like to be at 100-plus feet of depth and have something like this happen. But, you know, to me, um, uh, was uh, were, were you at that point it being your last dive? I mean, were you still feeling really locked on? I mean, were, were, were you just trying to get through it, or where, where was your head at? Can you trace it? To anything, is there anything that you think you could have maybe done to prevent that scenario? I mean, any procedures that you missed, any complacency involved, any anything like that, or, or was it just just happened to be your last dive? And as far as being locked on or complacent, I was definitely locked on. Okay, uh, you know, I know the severity of it, um, so I definitely was not complacent. I was locked on. I was ready to go for every mission. Um, and I was having a blast. Matter of fact, I was more excited because knowing like, man, this is it. This is the last one. Yeah. You know, make it count. I'm going to miss this because I absolutely loved my Navy career. It was a tough decision um, to leave the Navy. You know, you're getting bombarded with the $30,000 reenlistment bonus. Uh, we're going to send you to more ga- uh, more dive training, gas dive training, et cetera, more yeah. bomb training. I just, I wanted to follow a second path, which I'd always wanted to be because I had one idol in my life and that was my grandfather and he was a New York City policeman for 21 years. Uh, So I always wanted to be a policeman. So I had already started the testing and got accepted by the Los Angeles Police Department, but I was still so into the Navy. I mean, I was getting paid to work out, wear UDT shorts and jungle boots, get tan all day and, you know, swim out in the ocean. So I, I was... I definitely was locked on. Somehow, whoever was in charge, and I never asked, somebody for that mission was had the responsibility of charging our tanks, jamming our jugs, and they made a mistake, and it almost cost me, um, or co- I should say, cost the team because we're all one. But I was able to stay calm, just like I did to make it through dive school, because I realized panicking ain't going to do any good. No. If I panic, I'm just going to drown down here, you know, so let's get through this. So, you know, again, I, I, when the heat of battle comes, you always resort back to your training. Yep. Yep. That's all we did was train. Again, I wasn't at war. So I just resorted back to the training that was instilled in me. And even though this was the only time I ever had a close, close call, um, the tr- relying on the training worked and having confidence yeah. in it. And you guys, you guys, I, I don't know if, uh, I just, I had a speaking engagement today and was talking to these people and, and, you know, I'm stressing, stressing training to people. I stress training to people so much. And you guys, here, here's the reason, right? Chris is telling you the same thing that this is the reason why I stress the importance of training and training like you fight. Because Chris just said it. It couldn't be said any better. In the heat of battle, when stuff is out of your control, when the situation is no longer in your hands, and you have to react and save your life, 
save the life of your business, save the life of a family member, whatever it may be, right? The 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 um, repercussions of your reaction uh, are significant. You are always going to fall back to your training if you have trained. If you haven't trained, you've got nothing to fall back on, right? And then what's your only other option? You're going to panic. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. That, you know, you talked about it over the weekend, um, this past weekend during the, the Proving Ground. You talked about, you know, plan your dive, dive your plan, you know, and, and that was true that day. Um, but regarding the training, we always train, you train like it's the real thing. And we, would, we did that in the units that I worked on a police department. You train like it's the real thing. So when the real thing happens, it almost feels fake, like more surreal, like, oh, yep. yeah, we've done this, done this before, even though now it's real, like the bullets are flying. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was just a hardcore training. And, and I like to refer to it as mindset. Some yep. people call it focus. I like using the word mindset. Yep. Yep. Well, hey, look, this, Chris, you're the first Navy diver we've had on the podcast. And um, I get a lot of, I'm so glad that you told this part of your story here because, you know, we get a lot of young people that listen to this podcast, uh, or, or maybe not, you know, super young, but even in their 20s, guys that might as aspire to have a military career. Um, aspiring to be a SEAL or, or maybe not sure about the whole SEAL thing, but know they want to do something special. And I think a career like Chris just described to you as a U.S. Navy diver and EOD technician is vastly overlooked. And it is probably, in my personal opinion, the best career path in the Navy. I think a Navy diver or EOD tech, and this, uh, EOD techs are, they're all, in the Navy, they're all divers too, but um, that is the best career path in the Navy. Like, like Chris just told you guys, it's, it's a, dude, there's nothing cooler than a dive locker. I mean, these guys are just, they're, they're, they're living the life, man. They are living that life, and they're doing cool stuff. And they're solid, solid dudes. They're all fit. They all love their job. They all get plenty of sunshine. They get to do awesome stuff. So I'm really glad you told that story, man. Yeah, this, I, I know that's one I hadn't told you before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that uh, that was a, a little crazy way to end my military career. Yeah, so, um, you know, you said you're, you, had, you had one person that you really idolized in your life uh, and, and that was your grandfather yes. that was a that was my mother's father yes. okay new york city police officer yeah 21 years 21 years and what was your relationship like with him it was great i mean i um i used to beg my mom on the weekends you know uh after church on sunday mornings you know can we go out because they my grandparents lived in queens and at this point, we were living in New Jersey. When we had moved from, from Canada, um, we settled in New Jersey. So it was a little bit of a drive, depending on traffic, a little over an hour. But, I used, you know, we only had one car. It was a 69 lime green Dodge Dart 
Caputo were in no air conditioning, no seat belts. And, uh, you know, it's like, Ma, can we go out and see Graham and Gramps, you know, out in Queens, New York? And we would go out there, and he would just tell me the coolest stories. Yeah. And I would be sitting there just glued. And I just knew at some point, I always knew I wanted to serve the country, so military was already locked on. Yeah. But I always had that in the back of my head. Mm -hmm. And I can't say that I would have become a policeman had I not been sent to Ventura, California for my EOD detachment, you know, uh, location because Ventura, California is about an hour North of Los Angeles. And I knew being out there that at that time, Los Angeles police department was extremely highly regarded, uh, as not only the best police department in the, in the United States, but possibly the world. And that's what I, that, that's what, you know, drew me towards the Los Angeles Police Department. So about the last nine months or so of my Navy career, um, when the Navy was already starting to put the feelers out to get me to re-enlist, I started secretly driving down to Los Angeles, filled out the application, had to drive back down, take the oral interview, get a letter saying you passed that, you got to come down for a physical fitness test, um, you know, then the psych test, and then I go to take the physical, um, not sorry, not the physical fitness test. I'd passed that, the, the physical by, yeah. the, by the city doctor, right? And I have this lady, obviously I don't remember her name, nice lady, but completely out of shape and older. And she's checking out my whole body. And I am in, at that time, prime physical condition. Because all we did was work out. We would run down to the, the you know, EOD uh, Point Magoo is on the beach, so we'd run from our detachment, you know, we'd hit the weights all day, then we'd sprint down to the ocean, do an ocean swim, come back, run back. I was best shape of my life. Isn't it awesome? And then I get this yeah. LA city doctor who knows nothing about physical fitness, examine me. I go home, I don't think anything of it. And about two weeks later, I get a letter in the mail saying, you've been disqualified, you failed the physical. And I'm like, what? And during it, I had, you had to fill out the application and a questionnaire rather. And I had broken my knee twice growing up, um, you know, playing hockey and once falling off a bike. Um, so I had a cast for like six months at one time uh, from, from my thigh, I mean, from my pelvis all the way down to my ankle, right? Didn't, didn't hinder me becoming a Navy diver, any of that. But her findings were that my knee having had, issues with it growing up might jeopardize my partner in the field of police work. So I was looking at in disbelief. So I went to um, the dive medical officer, similar to like you did. Mm -hmm. And I show him this letter and the dive medical officer started laughing. So he was nice enough to write a letter and sent it back to the city, to the Los Angeles police department. And, you know, I was basically protesting my disqualification. Yeah. And about two, three weeks after that, I get a letter saying, okay, you're back on the eligibility list. So whatever he wrote in there, he basically wrote, because I, I read it, but whatever he wrote to them, they obviously realized, oh, we made a mistake disqualifying this yeah. guy. Because he wrote, hey, the things he's doing in the Navy are far more, far more demanding he'll ever do as a yeah. policeman. Physically. Yeah, physically, yeah. Maybe not mentally or, or yeah. other aspects. But, you know, so I got put back on the eligibility list, um, got 
through the background check. And then suddenly I get a notice saying, hey, congratulations, you're hired. You're going to start March of 1989. And my tour in the Navy was ending February of 89. Now, I got to ask you, Chris, it's interesting to me that you make this um, career transition because you've put in a lot of work, not only to get into the Navy, but then you've done, you've done your deployment. You you've now you've went to these specialized schools. You're a Navy diver, EOD tech. You've put a lot into this career how would you describe your desire to become a, a police officer? Because that's a, that's a, you left a lot to go do something that you had never done before. So what was that desire like, man? What was the driving thing? You know, it was the, the continued service. So I was serving the country, which I felt was an obligation uh, and a passion that I had wanted to do. And you're right. I had what I still feel the coolest job ever. Yeah. I was getting paid to work out, dive. Yeah. So some of the nights were tough because we would train all night long, et cetera. But I, I loved every aspect of it. And I, there was something about wanting to continue to serve, but in a smaller capacity, meaning instead of serving the country and we weren't at war, now I'm like, you know what? I want to transition and I want to serve the community. So on a smaller scale, more personable yeah. and personal scale. So that coupled with the Los Angeles Police Department and its reputation, I'm like, you know, that's a perfect fit. Uh, I just wanted that interaction with the community okay, where I was helping people mm-hmm. and I could put a face. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to say, hey, I'm, I'm serving a country, I'm helping a country, but you're just talking about the country. You don't you don't get that in the military. Correct. That, uh, that interaction with the community and feeling like you're not impacting the community that you're in, really. And and another thing, so, uh, and I think I'm okay to say this, I don't think the Navy would freak out, but they paid us, us EOD guys, to live off base. They didn't want us on base. Yeah. So, and I still remember it to this day, because I was living on Channel Islands Boulevard in Ventura County, or and... They were paying us $450 a month. So we were getting dive pay, demo pay, and special duty assignment pay. So we're already get, making more money than, you know, and I, I, my highest rank was E5. Mm-hmm. So I'm already making more, a substantial amount with those three, hazardous duty, demo, and dive pay. They were also paying $450 a month to live off base. And I still remember to this day, my rent was $525. So I was thinking, I'm paying $75 a month rent. <laughs> I got the greatest job in the world. I'm working out. I'm diving. I'm with this small group of like-minded people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it, was, it, was at, it was at a point in my life where I thought, if I do the reenlistment, I'm going to be a career Navy. Because you keep getting deeper and deeper into that. Yes track yeah yeah so i go if i take the plunge and re-enlist and take the the thirty thousand dollar re-enlistment i'll never do the police thing yeah and i just right i made the decision no i want to serve a community i want to put a face to the people that i'm helping and serving and so i made that decision i tested i never looked back and it was a little bit easier we talked about this on the run today now looking at it um i think i when i first met you at the basic course I probably wasn't thinking it through when I told you it was easy for me to leave the Navy 
and, and close that door. Cause I know I don't look behind me. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think you should. It's not that you don't look back and take what you've learned and what you've, you know, things you've done well and, and lessons learned and mistakes you've made and hold on to those to help mm-hmm. forge your future, but you don't dwell on the past. So I think also what helped close that door faster though, was in one month time, I'm out of the Navy and I'm, you're on you a know, new mission. I'm in a, with a shaved head back through the police academy. That's right. Starting over. Um, so, you know, it, it made that transition pretty easy. Yeah. Um, it, you know, and I want to ask you one more two, one more thing, too. You talk about that service uh, and your desire to serve. I, I, think a, I think a lot of people, a lot of people would love to have that that desire, that true, like, burning desire to serve others, right? Because it's an honorable way to spend your life. It really is. Where did that come from in you, man? Is it- my, my parents. Okay. Yeah. My, my parents, my upbringing, um, you know, we, we didn't have much, that's for sure. Um, and it was a family, you know, two older sisters. So, and I'm the youngest, you know, obviously. So, it was always, you know, taught, you got to protect your sisters, you know. And it was always putting others first. And appreciating the small things, you know, I look at old pictures when, you know, of our kitchen, which was as small as this table, Mm -hmm. um, back in Canada. And now, you know, we make it to New Jersey. We've got one car my entire life. Again, that lime green 69 Dodge Dart, no air conditioning. Um, But you appreciated that. You knew it was hard work to get that. It's hard work just to get a little bit ahead. And that's what was always instilled, you know, by my father yeah. and my mother um, to me. You know, everything from you want a nice lawn, you got to do it yourself. You know, you want a nice little apartment, you've got to keep it clean yourself. It was just all the little things my parents, you know, taught me about pride of ownership, attention to detail, and respect for others. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it came from them. Yeah. Now, as you as you make this transition, I know... I know you experienced this because I experienced the same thing. You have people in the Navy, the dive community, your your head shed, your mentors, your teammates. Basically, they think you're crazy. They 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 think you're crazy for leaving everything that you've worked for. And right, they try to they try to suck you in to stay in there, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they they told me specifically I was going to regret it. Yeah, and, I, I yeah I've been told that. Yeah, so I would always, you know, throw back at him. So one of our gunners was uh, Gunner Keller, and before, and then he got transferred out during my tour there, and we got Gunner McFarlane. Gunner Keller was transferred to the EOD detachment in Adak, Alaska, and I remember make you know joking with him, laughing, going, "I can't believe you're going to be diving in a dry suit." You're going to be freezing every day. Oh, yeah. And he jokes back with me. He goes, when you re-enlist and you graduate advanced gas dive school, et cetera, I'm going to make sure I flag you and get you to ADAC, Alaska. So when the guys, you know, Gunnar McFarlane and, and um, uh, Master Chief Tommy Dye and others that were there, they're like, Chris, you're going to regret it. I go, no, I'm not. Because I know if I re-enlist, I'm going to ADAC, Alaska. 
<laughs> and I don't like the cold. I came from Canada, and if it's if it's uh you know below eighty degrees, I'm freezing. So, dude, I've done OTBs in Alaska, but I've never done a dive in Alaska, and I never want to, son. That would be some rough stuff, dude. Now, making this transition, was there any? Did you have any? I guess emotional attachment to the community of or the city of Los Angeles or was it just the department's reputation that attracted you to that specific department it was it was the department's reputation okay yeah i had no ties to los angeles no friends no family at matter of fact at that time uh when i told my family and friends that i was trying out for the los angeles police department my mother was trying to get me to try out for the New York Police Department, which would almost make sense because that's where my idol, my grandfather Well, that's was. where I would have thought because it's also another very uh, a department that's held in high regard, right? So that's where I would have thought it makes sense for you to go there. Absolutely. But I guess on that level, I was just, I was on my own path, my own journey. Yeah. I'm an individual and it, there's nothing wrong with following someone in their footsteps at all. I just wanted to forge my own destination, gotcha. my destiny, uh, my career path. Um, so I was comfortable in knowing I was going to be a policeman like my grandfather was. Um, and I was just as comfortable knowing it was opposite ends of the coast. Yeah. So, yeah. And that coupled with the great weather and, that wasn't hard either. Oh, we're going to talk. There. We're going to talk about California here in just a little bit. <laughs> hey guys, uh, let's take a quick break, and then we're going to uh, we're going to unpack. Well, not completely unpack, but we're going to unpack a lot of Chris's experience with the LAPD. And uh, let me go ahead and tell you, it's pretty unique. So stand by. You got anything before we take a break, Blake? <laughs> ain't nobody gonna call him a fool. Oh, I ain't got. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll be right back. What's up, guys? This episode is brought to you by Salty Britches. I hope you've heard me talking about Salty Britches. It's the number one anti-chafing cream on the market, period. I use it for all of my ultra marathons. Any race, any run that I'm doing over 50 miles, I put a thin layer of Salty Britches on my feet, pull my sock up over the top, and I'm good to go. One application of Salty Britches has kept me comfortable, blister-free, chafe-free for over 100 miles of continuous running in the Georgia heat. One application, yeah. And I apply this stuff to any hot spot on my body that would normally chafe or blister or whatever it may be. It's a game changer. I got enough. I got my feel of chafing and SEAL training. Yeah, it sucks. I don't enjoy it, which is why I'm so passionate about Salty Britches. Also, this stuff is made in America. The owner of Salty Britches, Amy, is an amazing human being that really has poured her heart and soul into making the best product that can possibly be made, and she has achieved that. Look, buy some Salty Britches, throw some in your running box, throw some in your everyday carry bag, throw some in your backpack, and when you need it, you're going to be really glad you have it. Order yours at GetSaltyBritches.com. Use pro code 3 of 7, the number 3, lowercase, O-F, the number 7, for 20% off your purchase from Salty Britches. Follow them on Instagram at GetSaltyBritches. 
hey, we love you, Salty Britches. Thanks for being there when we need you. Thanks for sponsoring this episode of the 3 of 7 podcast. All right, guys. We're back with my brother Chris Reckliffe. Let me tell you guys real quick, actually, the reason why Blake doesn't have a mic. Let me go ahead and own this mistake that I made today because I make mistakes too. Um, I actually have two other podcasting mics. And Brooke and I recorded a Origins episode at my house because Brooke refuses to come here to the studio to record podcasts. She has to do it at on the couch at home. So uh, our other two mics are at my house about 15 minutes from here. Why'd y'all need four mics? Why'd y'all need four mics? You're just two people. <laughs> two mics are here. Two mics are over there. Yeah. So, uh, but it's all good, man. It's all good. Um, all right, we left off talking through Chris's transition from being a U.S. Navy diver, serving in the Navy for four years and five months. Awesome stuff. Awesome stories, man. I want to dig into um, dig into the, the second half of, well, I guess the majority of your career. How many years did you do at LA, LAPD? 31 years and 11 31 months. 31 years and 11 months. Holy smokes, man. And... Uh, yeah, that's all. Yeah. Um, and so, and the thing is, um, just the capacity that you, you know, what, you know, obviously the limited amount that I've heard of the, you know, some of the things that you did, some of the, the teams that you served on, um, uh, serving there in a extremely high capacity, doing specialized missions uh, in a lot of cases. Um, it was amazing to me. I, I never knew that there were teams within uh, local law enforcement agencies that were that highly trained and that specialized. I had no clue, probably because the Floyd County Police Department or the, the Polk County Police Department or these rural, rural police departments, I mean, they just, I guess there's not a need for teams like that. So they're not out here. I, did, I didn't know what was going on. I guess, did you know what was going on, Blake? No, I mean, I guess I had a little bit of an idea. But, you know, in the bigger cities, there's a lot going on and there's a need for it. But I didn't know to the extent of what you guys were doing. Yeah. Hold on, let me, let me spin this mic back around. <laughs> so, um... So starting off, I mean, I, 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 I'm assuming, like you said, you, you leave you leave your dive team, um, you're cleared hot, you go literally from, from the Navy to the police academy within a month, and, and here you are starting all over. You're starting back at base one, right? Shaved head and all. Yeah. Back, back to uh, square one. Um, and then I remember day one in the uh, police academy, our drill instructor had us write a one page, basically, you know, like the old one minute, one second, tell us about yourself. Yeah. We had a homework assignment. You got to write about yourself on one page. So obviously I included my, my military career. And when I was in boot camp in the Navy, I was the guide on. Yeah. So what happens day two after my drill instructor, Jerry Stokes reads it. They give you the flag. They, they gave me the flag. And I'm like, <laughs> I got this poll again. 
So <laughs> big for, mistake for seven months in the police academy. I'm running around with a flag again. Got to carry that thing everywhere to all the classrooms, all the the, the group runs, everything. How, how intense was the academy? And, and I'm asking you this because I, I have to imagine it was they held you to an extremely high standard. Um, just because the department, the LAPD, does have such a um, such a, a great reputation as professionals. I mean, I've seen these guys in L.A. When I, I've been to L.A. one time, it's when I went to do a podcast with Lewis Howes and those guys, and and I saw some LAPD officers in uniform. Um, they were standing on a sidewalk. They weren't in a patrol car or, car or anything, but these dudes were squared away. They were physically fit. Their uniforms were perfect. From head to toe, they were shaved. Hair. I mean, these guys looked like what you would imagine a police officer looked like back in the old days when they took, I, this is not to put police officers down, but in some rural communities, some of the police officers, they 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 get a little sloppy. All right, they get that. I mean, they're, they're doing a hard job. They're doing an awesome job, but I think it's important. That is an important position of of service and everyone that sees you looks up is going to look up to you when you have that uniform on and these guys i saw in la they were the best looking most squared away officers i've ever seen anywhere in the country it was it was amazing so what was that academy like man yeah and, and just to to add to that um two things one you know you know the phrase command presence so you want to look sharp in uniform because you know people are looking at you. And if you look squared away, maybe you're not squared away for what you're about to do, whatever the radio call you're going to. But if you walk in acting like you know what's going on, that's half the battle. Yeah. So a lot of it is command presence. And LAPD was always known for looking sharp in their uniforms. And it's a simple uniform. It's dark blue and there's, there's no patches. Mm-hmm. You know, unless... You start, you know, promoting a training officer and sergeant, et cetera. Um, so it's a very clean uniform. There's not a lot going on. Yeah. And um, so that's with that. That's where the uniform comes from. And I know a lot of agencies throughout the country have switched to an LAPD style. Not only the uniform, we're also known for the badge. It's a very iconic badge from remember the show, you know, One Adam Twelve. Um, so it's it's a it's a very uh, iconic badge. Mm-hmm. So a lot of police agencies have changed their badge to, to mimic. And even NYPD, New York Police Department, they used to wear the dark blue pants and the light blue shirt. They changed to all blue like LAPD. Yeah. Uh, but as far as the police academy, it was tough, but it wasn't tough for me. And I'm, it's not that I'm any better than anyone else. It's just that where I had just come from. That's right, yeah. I'm sitting here diving for, you know, four years, almost four years, on an EOD team, working out every day, cross training every day. So, you know, to me, it was, it was hard because, you know, we had a hill right there. I mean, the police academy is in Elysian Park, uh, which is in Los Angeles, right across the street from Dodger Stadium. It's in the hills. Mm-hmm. There's no flats. And we were running every day. So you're either running up or down. And right outside the classrooms is a straight up vertical hill right outside the shooting ranges. And it's called Discipline Hill. So when we would mess up, you're at Discipline Hill, sprinting up and down, up and down. I didn't have a problem, um, neither did our, our, our class leader, Marvin Brent. He was from the Marine Corps. 
Uh, he was super squared away. So the guys that had just transitioned from the military didn't really have much of a problem with the PT aspect. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the classroom stuff and learning law, that's a whole different thing. So the PT may be easy, but now you're learning the law. Yeah. And then they're putting you through training what we call sit sims, you know, um, situation, you know, simulations. Yeah. Where they'll, they'll, they'll come up with a domestic violence call and it's all role playing. And then you're getting there with your classmate trying to solve the problem and stuff. So those things and the, the testings, whether it's, um, again, law or, you know, uh, department policies and procedures and, and, you know, methods of operation, those were the harder things uh, for me. The shooting, no, you know, again, coming from the military, uh, didn't have a problem with any of the shooting yeah. at that time. Uh, so I go from the military having a rifle and a Beretta 92F, go to, here I am going to the Los Angeles Police Department, and what do they issue me? A six-shot revolver. I was one of the last classes to get the revolver. What caliber do you remember? Three fifty-seven. No, thirty-eight. Thirty-eight special. Thirty-eight. I just bought it for sixty-eight dollars. They let me buy my gun when I retired. Sixty-eight dollars. <laughs> sixty-eight Smith, bucks. Smith and Wesson four-inch barrel. Boy, that's a deal right there, brother. That Smith and Wesson is not a cheap gun. Yeah. So, you know, it's just it was odd going from a semi-automatic uh, automatic pistol to now I'm you know carrying a revolver. Yeah. That was probably my only thing. And at that time, our agency wasn't carrying rifles unless you were in SWAT. So there, there was a slow progression yeah. to where we, we are today yeah. uh, with what we can carry. I think it was three classes after me, academy classes after me, that they had transitioned to the Beretta. And I remember at that time being mad because now I'm going out on a patrol as a rookie with a revolver. And in these couple classes later, they've got, you know, a Beretta. Yeah. Um, Which is much more effective in a firefight. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but you know, the, the, there wasn't too too many difficulties for me at all at, at the uh, the academy. It was seven months long. We talk about that high standard, and I, again, I think the high standard is obvious given the department's reputation. Um, do you feel like, or have you seen any evidence that those standards have changed or been compromised at all over the course of thirty years? Um, and, and by no means if, is this is this a, a, a opportunity for us to put anybody down. I think it's just I, I want to hear an accurate assessment of that because it's a conversation that's being had um, around standards that our police officers have to go through. Are they where where are you at with that? Uh, well, where I'm at with it is number one, I'm not worried about putting somebody down. Yeah, because I'm a straight yeah. shooter. I know you are, um, brother. Yeah, the the standards have slipped a little bit. Um, they're still getting very quality, uh, you know, people that are applying and recruiting and getting them into the academy. But the standards have, have definitely slipped. Um, and a lot of it has to do with political correctness, not wanting to hurt someone's feelings, not one, wanting to tell somebody, hey, guess what? Come back and, and reapply when you lose 30 pounds or 20 pounds, yeah. whatever it is. It's, you know, we've had people that get turned away and will sue. They'll, they'll sue and yeah. say, you know, uh, you know, weight discrimination, you name it, LA will sue, you know, and this is California, right? So, um, uh, slightly, uh, in my opinion, over three decades, the, there's still quality candidates. Don't get me wrong. 
like <clears throat> instead of one or two squeaking in, mm-hmm. you know, there's always that one or two or three. Always. It uh, doesn't matter how hard you right. make it. Yeah. Now instead of one or two, there's ten or twelve. If you know what I mean? Yeah. It to me, it's amazing. You know, hearing you talk about the academy was was seven months long, and I was a police for a couple years, and our academy was probably. It was like four or six weeks long, I guess. And uh, this is no put down of our local agency. They just don't have the funding. But we got hired on and they have this closet full of uh, old worn uniforms. Some of them, the stitches are coming out of the patch. And they're like, all right, guys, y'all go in there and find whatever fits you best. You know, get, get what you can. And they're like, find a, you know, a vest that fits you. And I remember looking at the tags and I'm like, all these things expired like five years ago. The vest did. And they're like, oh, that's all we can afford. And, you know, it's just so sad that, that it's that way for the local police. But even above that, we were talking earlier how people are people, right? The police in L.A. are serving essentially the same people that, that were serving in our local community here. They're going to do the same kind of things just much more often in L.A., but... How often it is, I don't think, should determine how stringent of training you get. Like, I, it blows my mind that there's not a standard. Like, if you're going to be a police officer, this is what you've got to do. Like, this is the, this is what the mandate is. These are the classes you got to go through. You can learn different states' laws. But when when you said that earlier, it was seven months long. I remember thinking, man, that's serious. But that's how it should be everywhere. You know, I I agree with you a hundred percent. Uh, and you're right. It, it is, you know, for a smaller town, the funding at times, yeah. depending on what city or town it is. I mean, we have Beverly Hills next to us and they have a very squared away police department. They also have the funding. Right. Um, it's a very rich city. Um, but, you know, I, it's maybe a little too early to talk about this, but with the recent anti-police sentiment that we've had since last summer, um, our my old agency, LAPD, the budget was $500 million a year. Wow. They just slashed it because all this anti-police defund the police movement uh, that people just don't understand what that means. Uh-huh. They slashed it by $150 million. That's 34-something percent. Um, and, that, and that, that's going to cost them. Mm. The, the citizens are not going to get the service they dese- uh, deserve, and that breaks my heart. Yeah, because the, uh, the compromise almost has to come in the quality of the person that you hire. You know, that's... The quality of people that LAPD gets versus what Floyd County PD gets is is dependent on the pay. Like that's why it, someone who is going to go do a good job ain't going to walk into that uniform closet and say, "I'm not going to walk around this town looking slouchy with no training." You know, I'm going to go somewhere else that's going to pay me. Not that all the officers around here look slouchy, but I mean, really, like if I I paid with my own money to get my uniforms altered so that they fit me good because i wanted to look good but that had to come out of my own pocket yeah, you know exactly and you you shouldn't be the one having to do that right your employer should be but it, it to your point you you cut the funds you cut the quality of people that are out there serving you so i guess it's kind of beating a dead horse but it just kind of when you talked about that i just thought man it should be a standard across the board what it what it takes to be a, a police you know, that's an interesting concept to me, and, and I don't know if it's ever been discussed before, but wouldn't wouldn't that be a pretty cool concept? And, and 
to to have like you like you're saying to have a nationwide standard not 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 a federally mandated standard but a nationwide standard for that job of serving your community as a law enforcement officer yeah and i i was going to see if you were going to put that in there as long as it doesn't transfer over to the the, the government no i never it. want that to happen yeah i know because we're all downhill from there if, yeah if you leave the government in charge of policing um i i think a, a, a national standardization of you know maybe some tactics um yeah and, and that's and not that, that's it, not hard to do because there's an association it's called the international association of chiefs of police and it's made up from all the chiefs of police throughout the entire country whether it's a small town small city big city all over the country that's it they meet yearly they, i have no problem making a standard you know um you know with some some public influence if they want to have some 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 public uh on the board some citizens to also you know sit in and maybe give their opinions um but i think i think there's not an issue with that the issue comes as long as the federal government's not 100 percent not, this is not, e this is easy. This would be something easy to implement. Right. It sounds like and and uh, and that that standard of having a nationwide set of standards, I think, would be that'd be an amazing improvement um, to our law enforcement communities. And and I just want to give one caveat. The reason I started this conversation around revolving around this subject with the uh, I prefaced it with no disrespect is because. I am so thankful for everybody that is out here in my community right now to keep me safe. Literally, if I need them, I can. Can you realize that we can? Do y'all realize how much of a luxury it is for you to be able to pick up a phone if something goes wrong and someone is coming to help you? I No, no, you don't realize how much of a luxury that is. Yeah, the 98% of us take that for granted. Do you not realize a hundred years ago, maybe a little more than a hundred, I forget it's 2020, whatever now, but it wasn't too long ago that there, no one was coming to help you period. Yeah. Right. And, and I am, it is just so awesome that we live in a nation where there are enough of our citizens that are willing, especially in this environment, yeah. to raise their hand and say, I will do this job for my community. <laughs> you can't disrespect anybody. For, for Anybody that chooses to raise their hand and do that has got my respect, even if they have some improvements that they need to make. You know what I'm saying? 100%. Yeah. I totally agree. Um. Where did you go after uh, after you graduated the academy, Chris? So, uh, you know, we call it probationary status or what most departments would call you a rookie, and that's a 12-month period. <laughs> Towards the end of the academy, though, uh, some detectives came in. It was like the last month or two, and they came into the classroom, and they were from a unit called the high school by team. And basically, it's an undercover officer, uh, that infiltrates high schools, trying to find out where all the drugs are coming from that are being sold to students, right? And the whole idea is to stem that, get students, you know, not being able to purchase drugs on the school grounds, 
ends to ultimately trace where the drugs are coming from. It's always an adult selling them so they could do search warrants and arrest the people, you know, basically the, the main drug dealers that are supplying a student or several students to supply it to, you know, everyone throughout the school. So they're always looking for people that look young. And they had come to the class, they gave their presentation, and then there were several of us that they approached. I was one of them. And they said, hey, would you, we, we like how young you look. Would you be interested in, you know, uh, coming to this unit? Uh, let us know. You know, here's our phone number. Um, and, and if you decide, you know, we'll, we'll take a look at you and, and we'll test you, see if you can pass the polygraph, et cetera. I didn't think too much about it because I was still in that regimented military. I'm a uniform guy. Yeah. Uniform. And now I'm 23 years old. And I go off on a patrol and I happen to tell my first training officer. And he was your typical 20 year salty training officer that smoked cigarettes as you're driving. Still in shape, but that was just the genre back then. That was oh, just yeah. the. That was the lifestyle they, they, they led. So, culture, yeah. Yeah, the culture. Um, so we're on the night shift, and I happen to – he's asking me about how the academy went and asking me about my military career because you got to form a little bit of a bond. Even though I'm new and I don't know what I'm doing, per se, uh, he's relying on me saving him just like I'm relying on you know, him, him saving me mm -hmm. and vice versa. So I tell him about that. And he's just this grouchy old timer that's been on patrol his whole career. And he goes, oh, you don't want to do that. Don't ever do that. That's stupid. Blah, 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 blah. After one month with him during my second year, or second month, rather, out on patrol, my rookie status, uh, I get assigned a new training officer because that training officer was on his vacation for the month. And same thing. Now I'm rebonding my second month with my new training officer, learning the ropes in the field. And I bring that up about the high school bike team approached me. And he goes, what'd you tell him? I told him, ah, no, I don't want to do that. And he goes, you're crazy. And he drives me to the, the, directly to the station. And I don't remember who the sergeant is, but he brings me in the sergeant's office. And he goes, hey, Sarge, sit down with Chris. Chris was asked by the high school by team to, to join. Uh, and he told them no. So that sergeant tells me, he goes, Chris, that is a lifetime opportunity. Not many people get to do something like that. Yeah. This uniform will always be here. There will always be an open seat in a black and white car. I get in a, it. In yeah. a patrol uniform. Mm -hmm. You can go to any specialized division and assignment and not like it and always come back patrol. They'll welcome you with their arms open. He goes, call them. You should do it. I go, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm 23. I don't see how I look 17. You know, uh, I, I'm. I'm kind of militaristic. I still have my military mannerisms about me. Mm -hmm. And he's like, call him up. So I called up the, the, the detective that runs the unit at Barry. And I said, you know, this is, you know, probationary officer, you know, Chris Reckliff, and I'd like to apply. So he says, come on down. I go down. I take the polygraph, pass that. And um, they accept me. And they hold you for a few months to start growing your hair out because they want you to start looking undercover like a student, and they put you through a couple months of training. Uh, they take you out to Hollywood to buy, you know, and it's a test. They'll send you out on the streets of Hollywood Boulevard. You have to buy dope. You know, they'll send you to Venice Beach, California, the boardwalk. You got to find someone selling dope, buy dope. 
and it's just to get you into the drug world. Now, um, when you go out on these training missions, are you uh, are you carrying concealed or not at that time? Okay. Um, what what they do for the high school buy team is they they yeah I could, I could say this because the 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 last mayor not a current mayor the last mayor disbanded the program. And oh. I'll, I'll end with that and I'll tell you why. But they actually take your ID from you and your gun and they issue you or at the time they issued you again the unit's no longer in existence they take you to the dmv at six o'clock in the morning before it opens and you are issued a real driver's license that says you're 17 and you change your name so i and they always have you keep your first name because you're used to being called yeah, by it yeah and i just they usually encourage you to use your mother's maiden name as your last name so that's what I did. So I had a real driver's license from the DMV that said I was 17 years old with a different name. And that's what you use when you ultimately go undercover. But on those training missions, yeah, you're not carrying a gun um, because they're always spotting you. All the seasoned detectives are okay. out there. They're, they're, they're spotting you. Uh, they're in distance. So they're like lane graders. Yeah. They're, they're seeing how you interact and, and making sure that nothing goes because, because yeah, I, I imagine you're out there looking to buy drugs. You're you're in some uh, some circles of uh, uh, rough individuals, and you might could get in a hairy situation. So uh, that's absolutely. why I was wondering that. Yeah, and they and they teach you, and they teach you what happens if it goes sideways, if you get robbed. You know what yeah. to do, how to act, um, and it's just to see how you interact in the real world. So you know, I always just would wear my surf shorts and flip flops, and just walk around and. Uh, <laughs> You know, it was pretty cool. Not know? what you thought you were going to be doing. <laughs> no. And and part of me was like, man, did I make the right decision? Did I right, make the right decision? So I get through the couple of months of training, and then they send me undercover in high school. And nobody knows, not even the teacher, I mean the principal, knows there's an undercover, who it is, or any of that. Mm -hmm. So I go there, and at this time, on television, the number one television show was called 21 Jump Street with Johnny Depp. And that's what he played, an undercover officer in the high schools. Yeah, yeah. So here I am in a, a high school in Los Angeles, and I'm looking at the students to my left and right, and their book covers are 21 Jump Street because they're all watching the television show, and I'm like, I'm really doing it. Dude, I forgot about book covers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> So uh, I get through that. Uh, they have you do a semester, and your goal is to not just if, if you can tell pretty quickly if someone's trying to sell you drugs because they want to be your friend, like they think, oh, you're cool. You're you're not buying from them because that's not a real drug deal. Or someone trying at the time it was like weed and coke. Uh, but if someone's trying to sell you a joint and you can tell they want to be your friend, they're not really supplying drugs. They just want to hang out. Yeah. Yeah. So you you wouldn't you know, buy from them. Your goal was to find the real suppliers that, that were selling dope and ultimately get them to lead you to where they're getting it from off campus. So then you can get an address, detectives could write a search warrant, et cetera. Um, and it was so much harder than I could have ever imagined. Really? Yeah, so I'm watching this show on television with Johnny Depp and everything's easy. But when you're doing it for real... Mm -hmm. It was stressful. And it was stressful in that I would buy drugs from you in the morning, right? 
The goal is to buy as much drugs as you can from as many different people. And I wouldn't know, I would maybe know your first name, but wouldn't know who you are, you know, your last name or anything else. I may know you have math, period six. So how it would work was I'd buy drugs from Blake, but I wouldn't know any more about him other than his name is Blake. And at, at the end of the school, I'd have to drive downtown to police headquarters, going through the back door because your identity is hidden. They called it 650 status. So you don't have police ID. You don't have your gun. Um, you couldn't go to the police academy, police credit union, any of the police functions, police, you know, running races, organizations, fundraisers, retirements, anything. You're, you're removed from the police world. Yeah. And you would go there and you would look through the high school books to try to find Blake's picture in there and go, okay, this is him. This is who sold me the cocaine this morning. And that's how we would get the IDs through the yearbooks. Um, or if they weren't in the yearbook, and not everybody takes the yearbook pictures, mm -hmm. uh, I would know Blake worked, you know, or was in math class period six. So then our detectives would have ways to get the roster from math class mm -hmm. period six, say, okay, there's a Blake Jones or, you know, yeah. whatever, and that'll be him, okay? Um, the way it got hard was this. As the weeks and months went by, so I'm buying from Blake a couple times in the morning, and now I find out from somebody that you sell drugs, and I see you during lunch recess, so I hit you up, and I buy from you. Blake sees me, but I don't know he's watching me buy dope. Yeah. So then later at school's over, Blake hits me up. Hey, bro, I saw you buying from Chad this morning. What's up with that? You got to be quick on your feet. Oh, man, bro, I was looking for you. My sister called me, and, uh, you know, mm. you know, she, she needed some, and I was looking for you. I couldn't find you. I ran into this dude, Chad, and, you know, Chad hooked me up real quick. Sorry, bro, won't happen again. So that was stressful, number one. The other thing was, unlike the television show, you weren't going to the football games. You weren't going to the parties. You yeah. weren't doing anything. Yeah. And the reason behind that was when you ultimately go to court, the defense is, Oh, Blake only sold drugs to Chris, you know, Officer Reckliff, because they were friends. You know, Chris went over Blake's house or whatever. Yeah. I would be able to get on a witness stand and say, the only time I saw Blake was during my work hours, which was during the school, on school campus. Yep. So what would happen is Friday would come, you're at school, and you would say, hey, man, I'm having a party at my house. My parents are gone for the weekend. It's going to be a big bash on Saturday. And I got to play it off like I'm going to be there. Yeah, yeah, I'll be there, bro. I'll be there. And I don't show up because I can't. I'm not allowed to go. Mm -hmm. So now Sunday night, everybody's watching Arsenio Hall. That's the biggest show on television, right? All I'm doing is sitting at home stressing about what am I going to say to Chad when I see him tomorrow at school? Why wasn't I at his house party? Yeah. And as the weeks and months go by, you start running out of excuses. And you forgot. You start forgetting what excuse did you use last time? Oh, I could only imagine. Yeah, it starts getting hard. And did the did the department leave that up to like your creativity? Like, were you expected to be creative, well, or did they yeah, kind of guide yeah. you in those responses? A little bit of both. Yeah, you had a detective handler. So every day after school, whether you bought drugs or not, you would go back to police headquarters through the back door, and they would sit down and basically debrief you. Mm -hmm. And they would say, "Hey, Chris, had your day go?" You know, you get, we call it getting narked um, mm -hmm. when the kids would start saying, hey, Chris is a cop. He's a narc, you know. And I said, no, still doing good, still doing good. Uh, starting to have a little trouble with this one guy. He's starting to ask too many questions. Because what will happen is a couple months into it, 
suddenly someone's having a house party, and once again, you're not there, even though you say you'll be there. All it takes is one person at a party to go, hey, man, anyone ever see Chris at any of these parties? Mm -hmm. All it takes is that one thought, and then the whole room goes, yeah, man, anyone ever been to Chris's house? You don't have a house to bring them, them to. Yeah. And suddenly you start feeling the heat a little bit. And again, as the months go on, it gets a little bit harder to come up with excuses. You start forgetting what you, you know, what excuse you use with this person or that person. It starts getting a little tricky. Um, but there's ways of getting people's mind right. Because you know how people, uh, no different than gang members, everybody's tough when they're with a bunch of people. Yeah. But you get them alone, you know, you can, you can put some fear into them. Oh, yeah. So what I would do, uh, I didn't get narked. You know, that's what we called it. Um, we had guys that got chased out of school the first week. They already were getting narked. They just weren't cut out for that they, job. They weren't cut out. Yeah. Um, I made it all the way through. And not that, again, not that I was better than anyone else. I just, you know, I, I realized, hey, Sunday wasn't screw off day for Chris. It was, I may be off, but I got school tomorrow. I got to start coming up with valid reasons, new alibis do alibis there that's you right go. so i um i went through that and uh i had one instance towards the end where two or three people you know i'd walk by and i'd hear somebody say like there goes the narc and i you know i don't turn my head but i know they're talking to me but i know who it is by this point and by then you've ditched school so many times you've been chased by the school police um they used to put <laughs> we had a big big like 12 foot fence perimeter to school and the school police this is the tricky stuff they would do they used to put blue ink on the permanent ink on the top of the uh, rung of the fence yeah at lunch we would run for the fence because we're going to ditch ditch class and go buy some dope off campus and that was the goal to go find the houses hey man you know i know this dude you know joe sells it he's his house is a couple blocks from school roger that hey at, at lunchtime we'll jump the fence so we'll run for it. The school police will be chasing us. We'll hop the fence, and you have blue ink all over your clothes <laughs> and stuff. And you're like, oh, man. So um, by the time I started getting narked, I had been there so long, I knew everybody and what their classes were. And what, you know, people that don't want to learn, every class they go to, the first thing they do halfway through their class is they grab the hall pass so they can use the bathroom, yeah. right? So you got you get the bad guys routine down. So you know I know I knew this one guy that was starting to narc me and start telling everybody I was a cop. So I knew what his routine was. So I just waited for him one day and followed him into the bathroom. And granted, you know they're seventeen, eighteen, so you know the juvenile side. Mm -hmm. You're not putting your hands on anybody, but you know just like you could talk into a bullhorn without using a curse word, and you could put the fear in us like you did this weekend. Yeah. Um, you could put the fear into somebody verbally and that's all it would take to get someone to stop narking you. You know what I mean? <laughs> you get them alone in the bathroom and you have a little talking to them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and that in and of itself, I imagine that they're, that they're thinking, um, uh, you know, well, uh, this guy, if this guy was a police officer, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be cornering me in a bathroom talking to me this way. Like it, it, to me, it plays into the reality of your role, man. And the other thing that was tricky and, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on this, um, but it, we called it tripping. So this is the pager error day. We didn't have cell phones. Yeah. 
So if we got a page from the office, like, you know, with a code, that meant, hey, you got to get to a pay phone and call. And if you're going to trip, which meant you're going to get in your car, I had a little Volkswagen bug. Um, they always wanted you to be the driver, right? So if they said, hey, Chris, we're all going to this dude's house. He's got a huge stash of coke he just got. Well, you want to get to that house yeah, because you want to get the address and give it to your detective handler. And ultimately, there's going to be a search warrant. on. That's the whole goal. Um, it's unrealistic. To, to sit there and tell the students, you guys go, hey, bro, we're going to go, we're going to go to this guy's house. We're going to buy a bunch of Coke, whatever. You go, Roger that, I'll follow you. No, man, just hop in our car. Oh, yeah. You, you know, you're supposed to be the driver and the whole reason behind it is safety that you have control of where you're going if it gets haywire. It's, that's just not reality. So I, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll jump in your car. I know I'm not supposed to do that. I jump in your car. The first time I jumped in somebody else's car in the back seat on the floor was a shotgun. And that's when you're like, ah, this is why I'm supposed to always be in charge of tripping, driving my own vehicle. And you're unarmed. Right? Un un again, all you have is, I had a driver's license, a real driver's license said I was 17. That's wow, it. Man. And because you don't have a cell phone, it's usually what it is when they say, hey, if you're going to trip off campus, get to a pay phone and call the office and let, let them know where you're going to yeah. be. If you ask a student, hey, where do you live? You know what they tell you? Oh, I live that way. They don't know. They don't even know their own addresses. Yes. So you don't have an address to tell them. And what, what, what you guys say, hey, we're going to go jump in the car real quick. Let's go. I can't say, hey, hey, hold on. I got to run to a pay phone. You blow your cover, right? Yeah, you, you're raising a red flag right then. You yeah. got it. So there is an element of danger and you go into a crack house and it's just you and you have nobody, none of your detective handler, nobody knows. But they got it. You know, so, you know, I'd buy the dope and I'd be driving down to the office and I'd stop at a payphone, call my boss, say, hey, you're not going to be happy, sir, but I had a trip. You know, I went to this house. I couldn't get to a payphone. Um, and, and you know, they, they understand it. Um, I just didn't tell them about, like, the shotgun in the backseat. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, they're, they were happy to hear, like, okay, you got the address, you know, where you bought it, so now we can write a search warrant, et cetera. So, and then ultimately at the end of the school year they do what's called a roundup so they'll arrest all the students at once and hit all the search warrants on all the houses from the adults that are providing the kids the dope on one day at one time um that'd be the yeah essentially i think that that'd be the only tactical way to do it yeah. without without giving away what was happening right yeah. so the whole bunch of detective units will be serving all the search warrants two detectives will go into the school and go to the guidance counselor get the principal or the dean and say, hey, we need the following 20 students. They would get, pull them out of class, bring them in if they were there that day, you know. Yeah. You know, and um, they'd bring them in, they'd arrest them, they'd put them in their cars, and they would drive them to a remote site where I'm at. And then they'd pull up, and I would say, yeah, that's Johnny, that's Susie. And, you know, you Did know. Did they see you? Oh, yeah. And that's when, you know, <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I don't use bad language, but they're oh, using bad man, language at I me. Bet they were, oh, man. yeah. Um, but it was a unique experience, a very unique experience. Um, I think it did a lot of good because it, the goal was to stop the kids from progressing to when, if, and when they graduated high school, Yeah, that they didn't continue that in college and, and go down a worse path. Yeah. One guy I got, his goal was to be an LA city fireman. 
and he was selling dope big time. Mm -hmm. So I bought from him, and he'll never be a fireman again. You know, or never had the opportunity yeah. because yeah. this was on his records. It was to get their minds right. And again, like I said, the the real punishment went was to the the adults that are providing the dope to the kids to sell on the campus. Yeah, that's that was the main mission. That's the main target. Yeah. But our last mayor, Antonio Villaraigosa, thought that it wasn't fair to the kids that there was a police officer on the campus undercover. Um, so he actually canceled the program because it, LAPD, like most police departments, has become so politicized. Why even have a chief of police almost? The mayor runs yeah, the yeah. department almost yeah. to, you, to a percentage. Or how, do you, how do you feel about that decision after seeing the impact that you made while you did that job? I think it was a bad decision. I, th I think it's a good decision to have them in there because, you know, there's a ton of schools in LA Unified School District. There's not an undercover officer in each one. Mm -hmm. But for the students to think there may be, that's a deterrent in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But now when you see a news article, hey, LAPD has disbanded this controversial unit, that unit's been, in it was in existence over 20 years. No, it's free reign. Yeah, now yeah. it's like, oh, no penalty. Kind of like what we're looking at today. People do a crime, and now they oh, half these states have no bail. You just you get booked and you get released. And that's got to be frustrating, dude. It, it is. God, it it is to a degree. But, again, I'm so thankful that I was pulled aside and that sergeant says, no, that'll be a lifetime memory. You can always come back to patrol. Um, and I'm so glad I did it. It's such an interesting insight, and, a, and a, it makes for such a, a, for me personally, a captivating story because I don't know anyone else in my life who's done that job and then has also been able to articulate it in uh, in such a powerful way. And I just can't imagine how exhausting it had to be to to because I, dude, I know me and and Chris, you you've taught, you've been an instructor. Uh, me, when you're in that. It, whatever whatever role you're in, if you're in an instructor role, if you're in a teaching role, if you're in an undercover role, it's exhausting not to be yourself. It was very mentally fatiguing. It so, had to have been. So much so, I had success um, that they asked me to do another school. And I'm like, oh, no. One, one and done for me. Yeah. I'm not, you're not going to send me next school year to some other high school. I'm not doing this again. Yeah. I was point blank with them. And I had no problem. I was itching to get back to uniform patrol. Okay. I love wearing a uniform. Mm -hmm. So what was going on in the city in at that time as you as you moved from this undercover role performing this specialized task now you you getting back out in the mix of uh, like you said a uniformed position? Well, I got stopped from going back to uniform. Did you really? Yeah. So after telling my boss, uh, this is what the amazing mentor, Ev Berry, um, and I talked to him about two weeks ago. Uh, he's obviously been retired for a long time now, still doing great. Um, he's such a great leader that he's like, okay, Chris, I understand Chris doesn't want to go through this again. He actually reached out to another detective that ran a unit called the complaint investigative by team. And it was an adult by team. And it was basically people, they, it was fielding complaints that would be called in. Like someone would call the police department and say, Hey, my, I think my neighbors across the street are selling dope. Yeah. Okay. So 
it it no longer did I have to play a kid. I got my gun back and my ID back. But Ed Berry reached out to this detective and says, hey, you, you should take a look at Chris. I think he'll do good in your unit. They reached out to me. They gave me a position. So I continued growing the hair long. But now instead of shaving every day, I got to grow a beard. And I was buying dope throughout the entire city, from the beaches, communities, to the valley, to South Central, um, to the east side. And it was awesome. It, it was an awesome experience. Um, at times, you know, you got to learn. I was always good at, at that time buying heroin because by then I looked like a junkie. Um, I really looked, you know, I had that look of a, a, a heroin user. Um, so I was buying a lot of heroin downtown, um, a lot of heroin in the valley and on the east side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also was partnered up with a female officer. Um, so by now, because we've been undercover so long, we passed the 12-month probationary stage. So we get bumped up instead of a P1, police officer one rank, which means you're a rookie, which means you can get fired at will. Yeah. So now I'm a police officer too, even though I didn't do the 12 months on the streets in a patrol uniform. That's right, yeah. Um, I still, we still got upgraded to P2, and I'm still in, under this undercover status. And her and I were able to buy dope throughout the city. Because we, we would just hold hands, walk down the street. People think we're a couple, and boom, boom, boom. Now, during this this phase, were there any were there any close calls, any hairy situations, or or was it was it chill for the most part? I mean, <laughs> uh, it's definitely not chill. Um, sometimes you, I don't know. I've never bought drugs, yeah, so I don't yeah. I don't know so how I, this works. C- certain times you, you knew that. Hey, I'm gonna have to leave my gun in the car. At that point, so at that point, they had sent me through semi-auto school. So that was cool. So you got your Beretta now. Got my uh, that, and I bought a compact Smith and Wesson, uh, eight plus one nine mil, and but I still would carry my snub nose undercover because it was the easiest to conceal. Oh yeah. Uh, at times, I would drive up. I I know like this guy sells dope on a corner, so I'd pull up in my little undercover Volkswagen Bug. I think it was like a 1974. Um, I would purposely take off my shirt barefoot, and I would sit on my revolver. And then the dope dealer would come up to the car and he's seeing you shirtless with a pair of ripped up shorts and it was a quick deal through the, you know, yeah. through the window. Uh, there was plenty of hairy instances. Uh, I won't get into too many, but I, I, I recall one when my female partner and I got locked inside a crack house in South Central. And that was the height of when rock cocaine was being sold especially in South Central Los Angeles. And you get locked into a, you walk into a house and they lock that door of a crack house. This was the times where SWAT was using their, their um, armored vehicles on search warrants to go right through walls Mm -hmm. to rip, you know, on these crack houses. That was the error back then. They've obviously changed, matured and advanced their tactics to not do that um, in most cases. But at that heightened time where crack cocaine was so prevalent, we got, when you walk in and they shut that armored door and bolted shut, you're not getting out of there until they let you out. And that is hairy. So, this that, man, these are some, like, fortified positions. I mean, these you, people are dealing mass quantities of drugs, quite obviously. Yes. Dealing with large amounts, amounts of cash, I imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you got to keep your cool. 
you know it's it's almost it's almost relatable to breathing air underwater you can't start freaking out so you're looking around you better not have a panic attack in that situation you're looking around and you're like i can't get out i can't get out the front door and there's those security bars on all the windows and you're looking at these hardcore hardcore drug dealers and gangsters most of them are gangsters as well and there's guns laying there and they're dealing dope and you're buying and all you want to do is get the deal over with and get out um but there's no you can't panic um but that all goes back to they don't just throw you into this you're you, you get mentored by the undercover officers that are their tours coming up and they're getting ready to leave they teach you what worked for them what dress um to wear how to act words to say etc so it was constant acting role playing if you will um and visualization knowing hey tomorrow we're going to try to infiltrate this house and it's not easy to walk up to a door and knock on it they open if if you're lucky and they open for you they're going to want to know how you found it and you better be quick on your feet yeah, i already yeah. have so you've got to visualize this in your head hey if they say this i'm going to say that if they act like this i'm going to act like this um so and it was the same thing after i did that for two years um man two years i then taught you know i was basically the mentor for people that wanted to you know that were fresh coming in yeah now i was in that position of hey this is what worked for me you know yeah. this is what i said in this situation so that's it was kind of like the passing of the guard but they don't just throw you out there and say hey go knock on that door and try to infiltrate and buy dope yeah yeah Man, <laughs> that would be, I, I don't know if I could handle that job. I mean, to be quite honest with you, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I could handle that job. And, and you know, this is one of the things that really, um, I don't know what the word is, amazes me about you, Chris, or, or what, whatever it may be is, is, man, you've spent 30, 31 years dealing with these individuals that are essentially the scum of society right i i, I mean look <clears throat> a drug addict is not scum it's a, a drug addict is someone that's bound up <clears throat> in that addiction right it's the it's the one that is selling the drugs to me that is the scum it's the one that's promoting this thing that is destroying their community for some money and those people are and so that's just one instance of, of having to deal with literally the scum of society and it's so encouraging and amazing to me brother that you've been able to perform these tasks and deal with these type of people for so long yet your outlook on life is still so magnificent man your mindset your your goals your <clears throat> the love that you have in your heart for other people um it, it's just like <laughs> how man how do you maintain that how do you hold on to that for so long it takes such a special person to 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 be you brother i uh, yeah i i don't think um you know i i appreciate those kind words but uh i don't i'm not any more special than anyone else uh, I, that's just how I feel. I mean that I just had a, I just have a desire 
to help people. Yeah. You know, when you talk about the addicts, I have a lot of friends, a lot of best friends that are recovering alcoholics um, and, and drug addicts. Yeah. Uh, one of which is a former partner and she's been sober for seven years. Amazing. Praise amazing God. Amazing woman. Um, you're right. It, it's the drug dealers. In um, my mind, in my perspective. Um, yeah. And, and, and in my experience. Okay. Uh, Perfect then. Um, you know, I've got family members that have had their issues with substance abuse. Yeah. Um, love them dearly. It doesn't discriminate, man. That absolutely does not. Um, but, uh, so now that I leave the narcotics undercover world, I get to chop my hair off and my beard and put a uniform on. And this is where I want to know what's going on. Like what's, what's the main problem that you guys are facing as a, as an agency at that time? At that time, that's when, uh, everybody knows it as the Rodney King incident yeah. had occurred. Uh, and the riots <clears throat> had occurred. Um, and we're dealing with, with the aftermath of that and gaining the public confidence back uh, in our department. Um, you know, a after the first acquittal of the officers, there was a riot in South Central. And then the officers were retried for violation of uh, civil rights on a federal level. There was a conviction. Um, but it was regaining. I went to patrol in uniform. So now, and they put me with a training officer, even though I'm a tenured officer, per se, and I use air quotes, I hadn't been on the patrol aspect That's of it. That's right. Yeah. So they, they, they're smart. They put me with a training officer. And now I'm going into an era of trying to regain public trust, which to me was a perfect opportunity because that's why I was there, to serve the community. Yeah. And, and it just made me work harder in gaining public trust. And I just, I had that desire. Um, and then furthermore, I was mentored by a sergeant. James Oberly, he's my mentor on this job. He, he retired uh, about 10 years ago um, and was fun speaking at his retirement because it's always fun to roast somebody else. But he's an actual legend on the job. He, had, um, he was the original, what we call K-9-1. Uh, he started the K-9 for the police department. Okay. Him and some others, and he was K-9-1. So you got a huge legacy the then. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's from our Metropolitan uh, Division. Metropolitan Division is what is characterized as the best of the de best. The officers that work the hardest come from the gang units, uh, look sharpest in uniform, physically fit. It's where canines out of, SWAT is out of, our mounted unit, and then there's two line platoons that are the high, uh, you're, you're, you're focusing on the high crime areas throughout yeah. the city. You're driving around in a dual purpose car not a black and white just like a you know ford crown victoria with just lights in the window yeah almost and, like a special operations unit right but yeah. in, but it's a uniform uniform one. okay so he had come from that world in the canine world he promoted out made sergeant and by the grace of god i'm working a patrol division and he took a liking to me because he just saw how hard or at least i was attempting to work hard uh he obviously took a liking to me and said hey you need to go to metro division and I'm like, I, I don't know if I can, I'm cut out for that. I'd like to. I think, uh, you know, at, at this point, uh, he, you have to be a training officer, which is a P3, and I'm a P2 at that time. He goes, there's a P3 training officer spot coming up here in this patrol division. I want you to take it. So I, th I think there was three spots, and 100 people applied for it. I was one of the three that got it. So I got promoted to training officer. Uh, I worked as a training officer for 
two years. So at this point, I have about eight years on the job. And I'm loving it. I'm in uniform. That's what I love. And he goes, you got to try out for Metropolitan Division. And at that point, my goal, the goal was SWAT. Mm-hmm. 100%. Um, so I put in and I get accepted for Metro. So you can kind of see the way my career is going. I try out once to apply for the police department. I make it. I try out for the high school by team. I get it. I try out for the complaint by team. I get it. I try out for training officer. I get it. Mm-hmm. Everything is just going smoothly at that point. But you, you, you know, I think your reputation is preceding you at this point right off the bat, man. I mean, again, I'm nothing special, but I was working hard. That's for right. It you're putting, you're putting in the work. I mean, you, you, we all have to earn our reputation and, and reputation is extremely important. And I think it's something that a lot of us, that when we start out on some new journey, we're not thinking about our reputation from the very beginning. But uh, but it's pretty important because that's when it starts. Same thing in SEAL training. Your reputation starts day one one of BUDS. Right. I mean, and, and that will carry with you throughout your entire career in the SEAL teams. You know, so um, I think I think you were crushing that, man. So and and this is a turning point, if you will, in my career. So I try out for Metro and I get accepted and I go. And now I'm in a division of 200 officers that are the best of the best of a 9,000 police, you know, personnel police department. 9,000. Yes. Wow. So I'm with the t- what's considered the top 200. Again, that 200 makes up canine, SWAT, our mounted unit, our mm-hmm. horse unit, and the two line platoons. So you first go to the line platoons and you got to prove yourself there. And then when, if and when there's tryouts for SWAT or canine, or the mounted unit, you can put in for it, but you got to prove yourself on the line platoons. So I work with my uh, my brother Michael Henderson, longtime uh, partners. He and I were in Metro, and my goal he knew it was to go to SWAT. And there was like an unwritten rule: you had to do at least a year in Metro before you can apply. And about ten months into it, uh, there happened to be SWAT tryouts. Some of the guys are like, hey, Chris, you're going to throw your name in a hat? You're going to try out? And I'm like, no, nah, man. One, I don't have a year. Two, I'm working with my, my brother, Michael Henderson. So I'm having a blast working with Mikey. I want to keep working with him. I'm never leaving Metro Division. So I'll try out for SWAT in a year, two, three, four years from now. No big deal. I don't care. So you were getting you were getting filled up. It was, was it pretty action-packed? It, and- it was awesome. Okay. It was awesome. Yeah. So working the streets what we call hooking and booking, making a ton of arrests. Um, and then we we have an incident. I don't know if you guys had heard about it here, but uh, they called it the Rampart scandal. Rampart was one of the patrol divisions, uh, and the gang unit there um, had an issue with an, one of the officers. His name is Rafael Perez. So I like to refer to it as the Rafael Perez issue. I hate how they blanket it as Rampart crash was corrupt now there was one dirty cop Rafael Perez who was doing dirty things he was a corrupt cop simple as that he ultimately gets caught and the city's in an uproar uh similar to there's no riots but it was on the front page of the LA Times every day you're losing that trust again you got it yeah and our chief of police at the time was Bernard Parks 
and he and the district attorney, uh, Gil Garcetti, were not cohesive together. They were always bumping heads, right? And um, Gil Garcetti basically said, hey, he's the DA of LA County. He says to all, and now at this point, Mike Henderson and I were making the most arrests of any metro unit, you know, partnership there. We were hooking and booking. We were in court all day and going back at it, right? No kidding, man. And I'm not bragging, but I'm just yeah. saying that's just the way you it was. You guys worked well. Right. As a sw- I, we called a swim pair. You guys yeah. were crushing it, man. Exactly. And that was yeah. the reason I wasn't worried about SWAT. I'm like, I'll try out in a few years. Yeah. So what happens is when this Rafael Perez scandal comes, the district attorney tells all his DAs, hey, if you're trying any cases and you know you think there may be some inconsistencies you know close the case dismiss it send the case to internal affairs to look at the police department and any defendant and we're talking about hardcore defendant we're, we're i'm doing criminal cases where people are getting two life sentences they're always going to complain say they're innocent so suddenly mike henderson and i i at this point in my career i've got this is 1999, so I've got 10 years on the job. I've got zero personnel complaints in my package because I treated everyone with respect, no matter how wow, evil man. the person was. Suddenly, Mike Henderson and I get three personnel complaints, and we get sent to what's called a board of rights. Basically, you, as the officer, are the defendant. And the board is made up of two police captains and a civilian. We get sent to a board of rights, and I can't tell you what it's like to stand. We call it your sharp A. You have the short sleeves uniform with no tie, and then you have the long sleeve. You wear the tie. We call them sharp A. Like a dress uniform almost? Yeah. It's the same uniform. It's just that it's class A and class C. Yeah. Um, but for Metro, we don't call it class A. We call it sharp A. You better look sharper than sharp. Gotcha. You're in your long sleeve tie. Everything's immaculate. All your duty gear shined, everything. It's like you're going, you know, you're on the parade duty, you know? Yeah. We're in, they called it the oven. It's a Bradbury building, downtown LA. That's where the border rights trials go on. So we're defendants. We get removed from the field, barred from public contact. And we're defendants. Just because of these three complaints. Complaints. Yeah. Complaints by suspects that the jury's already seen them, these cases, and convicted these people, sent them to prison. But now all these prisoners are finding out, hey, man, send a personnel, uh, file a complaint against the officers saying they lied, planted evidence, whatever it is. And hey, man, if they convict these officers, man, maybe you'll get released from prison. And and you're saying you're having to defend your own case? You're having to defend yourself, basically? Yeah, you. I mean, uh, against you, this you, board you, of, you'll, of, you'll have a police representative to, yeah. to state your case for you. But it's an internal affairs putting on a case against you. This has got to be leaving a bad taste in your mouth at this point. The part that left a bad taste, and you're trying to keep a positive attitude. Okay, you're trying to. It's got to be but, tough but, right here. But where it hits you is Mike and I are in our sharp A's. Yeah, they make you stand up, and they read the charges, and they ask you how you plea. So here I am in sharp my sharp A police uniform with 10 years on, and I'm going not guilty. Mm. And they put a trial on us, and we caught 
the investigators from internal affairs, including a captain who and, and a lieutenant, lying about us. Wow, when that gets man. brought up on on during this trial against Mike and I as defendants, we catch them in lies. Our our attorney and rep catches them testifying against us, the catches them in lies. When they do, the captain at the time, who is now our chief of police, Michael Moore, screams at the stenographer to stop typing. Off the record, off the record. Why were they lying about, uh, why were they against, you're their boys, man. Doesn't matter. They're, what was the, like, what was their motivation to do that? Promotion. Mm, you see, okay. th- th- these are people that didn't have the courage to stay in the field and okay. keep working. Yeah. So these are the ones that make sergeant with the minimum amount of time, which mm-hmm. is four years, and run for cover and work POG, what we call POG duty, administrative jobs. They don't work the field anymore, right? Yells at the stenographer to stop typing. The two captains and the civilian board member, who was the city attorney for a, a neighboring city, which is the greatest thing having a, an, a, a civilian, especially an attorney, on that board. Because during questioning, the attorney goes, he stopped one of the investigators testifying and goes, wait a minute, Sergeant. I've been listening to you for about a half hour, and you've been telling me that Officer Reckliff, Officer Henderson have been forthcoming, trustworthy, honest in their answers. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So this attorney on the board goes, then why am I looking at charge number one that says Reckliff and Henderson provided false and misleading statements to you? And he goes, that's easy. I went into, I'm not going to say their names, but Lieutenant so-and-so's name and, and uh, Captain so-and-so's office to adjudicate this matter, to tell them it didn't happen. And they said, so what, charge him anyway. That's when the captain, Captain Michael Moore, who's now the chief of police, yelled at the stenographer to stop typing. And my attorney leaned into my ear and said, hey, this is for your lawsuit. Because he knew we got him. We got the department line. Yeah. They were just throwing us to the wolves so they advance their careers. Yep. Yep. So you want to talk about bad taste in your mouth. Yeah. <clears throat> they do a sidebar back in chambers. They come back on, you know, like this. They go, they get, we go back on the record. They say, hey, charge number one lying is over. We're not going to discuss it. If you, meaning me, Mike, and our attorney, bring it up again, we will be charged with insubordination to a board. So we were supposed to just let it go. Like nothing's going to happen to them. They get caught lying yeah, against us. Yeah. But we can't talk about it anymore. Or you're going to charge us with uh, insubordination. They're to essentially a board. threatening you. you That's exactly yeah. what they're doing. Um, so we beat our boards. We're good. Um, we go back to our um, our division. Uh, meet with our captain. Ultimately, a few months later, we're allowed to go back, work the field again. And Mike has such a bad taste in his mouth. I, I, and so I go, Mike, we got to sue these guys. Never sued anyone in my life. I said, well, we got to stand up for ourselves. Yeah. He goes, brother, I, I can't do this, man. I, I, I don't want to sue because I don't want to. This is, it was like a two-year pro. Oh, so by the, by, at this time, I'm benched. I have no public contact. Suddenly, there's SWAT tryouts again. Mm-hmm. And I'm not eligible to take them. So I missed my second time taking SWAT tryouts. And he goes, I don't want to go through this again. This is too stressful. If we sue, yeah, we may win. We will win. 
but I don't, we have to tell this whole story all over. I goes, I don't want to do it. I didn't know how he was feeling inside. So I just said, I thought about it to myself. Well, if I sue on my own, still going to drag him into it. Yeah. Yeah. So we didn't, he ends up having a stroke. That's how hard it hit him. Gosh, dog. So he was off for a year, rehabbed himself, taught himself back to shoot, made Sergeant and had a, a great second half of his career mm-hmm. as a sor- patrol sergeant and became a mentor. But the stress was was enough to, to cause compromise that. his physical health. Yeah. You got it. I, I, to- I mean, I totally get that, man. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a similar, not not ex- obviously not the exact scenario, but similar situations in the SEAL teams. And you see that all the time, man. You see it, it's, 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 it's an absolute... Um, shame i guess you could find another word for it but i'm gonna use the word shame that you know you even see leaders within the seal team that are willing to throw their boys under the bus that will that will make rank because of their willingness to do that right they'll make rank and then they actually end up in these leadership positions uh for for throwing guys under the bus in order to make themselves look better it happens man it happens over all spectrums of organizations and all levels it is astounding that it does happen it's astounding that people get away from it and i guess it's most astounding that you didn't just decide to walk away from that career at that point yeah well at that point you know i was raising kids Mm -hmm. um and you know i mean i'm thank god you didn't man right i mean because look at the work you've been able to do uh between when that happened and now sitting where you are today telling me sharing your story with me and and these thousands of people man so, so it's just it's just you know a, a great a great testament of your endurance and your dedication to that that line of work and that service man thanks so so what happened after that was um they split mike and i up of course because that's you know they, they still feel like there's a stigma like attached to you yeah okay these are the two partners that they don't look at it as you unjustly got accused of things. They just look at it. Hey, these guys went through a border rights together, so we're not going to make them partners anymore. So they split us up, and now I've missed two SWAT tryouts. And I'm certainly not saying I would have ever made it into SWAT. Um, you know, made it through the qualifications and the tryouts, but that was the goal. So the next tryouts that came up was for canine. And I said, hey, you know what? I'm going to try out for Metro K-9. It's the most elite K-9 unit in the United States. And my mentor, Jay Moberly, was the original K-9-1. Yeah. So I try out, um, and I know I'm in the running. And ultimately, I don't get selected. My, my buddy did, Dennis, phenomenal. And he deserved to get it. There's only one spot, right? He gets it. He goes there. One day he calls me. He's there a couple months. He's retired now. Calls me up and he goes, hey, brother Chris. He goes, I got to tell you something, man. I, I was working last night and I saw on the lieutenant's desk the names that were sent up from the tryouts for K-9 and you were number one. You were number one in the shotgun obstacle course. You were number one in the sit sims. You were number one selection. They sent it up. And Bureau said no. And it was the stigma that was still attached because LAPD has this unwritten rule. If you're if you're in some kind of trouble or associated with trouble, mm-hmm. 
they they pretty much shelve you for five years from promotions, you know. And I'm like, all right, Roger that. I said, I appreciate it, Dennis. You deserve to go there anyway more to me. And in the end, I'm glad he went and I didn't because I would have stayed there the rest of my career and I would have missed out. But what, what I realized at that moment, that was a, a career-changing moment. I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm done in this division. I'm done. I'm never going to get SWAT. I'm never going to get K-9. Uh, if I do, it's going to be eight, nine, ten years from now. I said, I want to go be a mentor. So I took the next sergeant's test, and I made sergeant. And I also, at that same time, there was a detective's exam. I happened to pass that. So I did my sergeant status, and then from there, detectives came up. I went and was a table detective, what they call for your probationary period. So you do your 12 months detective. Uh, I work in burglary. They send me over to robbery and homicide, working those, having an absolute blast. Because working detectives was when you start meeting victims. Mm. and you really start building a bond and you're, you're 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 you know i'm working so hard that i'm picking up witnesses to take them to court in my detective car just to help them out because you're talking about some poor communities where they can't afford to get to court you got witnesses yeah. and stuff so, so it, it has to become more personal at that point 100 percent. Right? yeah yeah so i'm doing detectives and my year's coming up and my goal was to go back to sergeant because i wanted to go back to uniform. I had been in Metro Division for eight years, proudly wearing that uniform. I'm a uniform guy. And right when my 12 months was coming up to be, okay, you're a detective as well. We call it dual status, meaning you're a sergeant and a detective. Uh, an old Metro partner of mine had left, and he was now a detective supervisor working a unit called Fugitive Warrant Section. He happened to come through the, the, the detective division that I was working at the time. I was working robbery. And he goes, hey, Chris, what's up? And he goes, I go, nothing, man. I'm just getting ready. I'm going to revert back to sergeant in a month or two. My detective stint is up. And he goes, got an opening in fugitives. You want to come to fugitives? And I'm like, what, what do you all do? He's like, oh, we work warrants. You know, so when you're a suspect, you identify a suspect, you can't find them, arrest them, you issue a warrant, right? Yeah. Well, we're the unit that goes out and finds that burglary or that robbery. Oh, Roger, that sounds pretty cool. So direct action unit, basically. Right. So I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And I, my goal was I'll do it for two or, two or three years at most, and then I'll revert back because I wanted to be back in the field as a sergeant. And I get there, great group of people. There's like, it, there's four bureaus in LA that they call. They call Valley Bureau, which is the north end of, the, of Los Angeles. West Bureau, which is the west side, the beach communities, mid-Wilshire area. East LA is, you know, and central area where downtown is, is Central Bureau, and then South Bureau is South Central Los Angeles. So there's four different platoons, if you will, um, in fugitive warrant section. And basically, you log on, there's a fugitive website, and the warrants will pop up, new fresh warrants. You know, this guy's wanted for burglary. This one's wanted for domestic violence. And that's pretty much what we were doing. We were going, you know, pull up the suspect info, do a computer workup, try to find him or her, you know, the suspect, yeah. and arrest them on the warrant. I got my fill of that for about three or four years, and I'm like, okay, I, I got to go back. I got to go back to, to patrol. It's, it was it was almost, it became mundane. It, the thrill it really wasn't there, and not to diminish a burglary warrant or, you know, a domestic violence. It just, it, it, the excitement was not there for me. Yeah. 
Um, so I was getting ready to go back to patrol and, you know, uh, my partner, he, he said, I can give him his name, George Morales. Um, he hits me up one day and I knew he's working this Wazoo unit. It's called the FBI fugitive task force. And he, he hits me up because, Hey bro, we got an opening, man. A guy here is dying to get out. It's just, it's too high. It's too high maintenance, too high stress, yeah. it's too much running and gunning. He goes, you know, we we know your reputation from working fugitives. Would you like to come to this unit? And this unit is made up of nine LAPD detectives and three FBI agents. And the FBI agents aren't your white collar um, ones you see on TV. Yeah, they're from their HRT SWAT team. Yep, hardcore. You know, that's a high HRT is a highly specialized unit. They HRT would actually integrate with SEAL platoons in some cases overseas right yeah. and they so and they sent so i i accept i get accepted i pass the background because you got to get credentials from the feds um you get what's called deputized so now you can travel the country with powers of arrest yeah and they sent us all to quantico virginia to go through a mini uh, HRT SWAT school. That's a sweet facility, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, except it was the July and August. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> Not a little humidity? A little humidity on the shooting ranges and tack vests <laughs> and helmets doing burpees. Yeah, that'll 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 dehydrate you quickly. But um, God blessed to go there, and that forever changed my career. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed part one with Chris Reckliff. Stand by. Next week will be part two with Chris as he digs in and unpacks some amazing stories and lessons learned during his time in this specialized unit within the LAPD that he just introduced us to. So uh, I hope you guys really enjoyed that. If you liked this show, if you got something out of this episode, if you enjoyed this conversation with Chris, please go leave us a review on Apple iTunes Share this episode with someone that needs to hear it. And uh, share it on your social media platforms. We depend on you guys to keep this show up and running strong. So we thank you so much for everything. We love you guys. Tune in next week for part two with Chris. Enough said.